Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Grabber and alongside me virtually is Logan Camden. And today is a mega Nerd Sesh show because we are going to be running through all of our NBA awards picks, our all-NBA picks, our all-defense picks, and our all-rookie picks. So we'll try to go through quickly with stuff that we've already addressed because some of these topics we've already kind of gone through. But we're going to be following all the real rules, which unfortunately means for all-NBA and all-defense stuff, We have to abide by their positional rules, which is two backcourt, two forwards, and then one center. It's dated. It annoys me. It means that we can't necessarily get the best guys for those respective groups, but that's how they want to play. That's how we'll play it. And maybe we can get into some of the frustrations with that with our specific picks. But let's start with the award segment of this. And let's start with the biggest award of them all, MVP, which I think we've spent the most time on. But we'll give our top five candidates for this. And then for the other awards, we'll give our top three. But let's start with the bottom and build towards the top here, Logan. Now, we talked about our top five guys in the MVP race a few weeks ago. My list hasn't really changed. But let's move quickly through it. Who do you have in the five spot? In my five spot, Carson, uh, I've got Steph Curry. And uh, Steph has been just as elite as he was in his last MVP run. And I think a lot of people are quick to jump and want to give him this MVP award. Obviously, um, with the circumstances that he has dealt with, I think are severe. Maybe one of the uh, worst circumstances for any superstar in NBA history. Uh, I think it's one of the toughest in the league today. But I, the reason, obviously, he can't win this award is because he did not lead the Warriors to a top seed, but I think he deserves to be in this conversation for what he's dealt with around him. Uh, his second best player on this Warriors team is Draymond Green, a complete non-threat on offense when it comes to scoring the basketball. He is an elite facilitator still at this point, but he has to bear this uh, overwhelming scoring load for the Warriors to stay competitive each and every night, and he has dragged this roster to a playoff berth, to 37 wins, to competitiveness every night uh granted Andrew Wiggins has gotten better uh Kelly Oubre has been shaky it's just the makeup of this roster is not what we have seen of obviously these Warriors teams of the past and are 
subpar compared to the rest of the league and what other situation superstars have to deal with. So is Steph in your top five or who's in your fifth spot? Yeah, well, Logan, I'm not actually a loon. So of course I have Steph in my top five. I think you're a loon for having him fifth. We're talking about a historically great season. And by the way, winning that when he has been on the court is comparable to some other fringe candidates, guys you might have in and around the five spot, like the guy I have fifth, who is Luka Doncic. And I considered... Damian Lillard, a very similar candidate whose team currently has the same record. I consider Jimmy Butler, another guy with a similar record. And then I considered Rudy Gobert, who's a really unique candidate and that obviously his impact is so singularly felt on the defensive end. I considered all these guys. I ended up going with the guy who I think has the most pronounced offensive impact and who was the best player of the bunch. And I really consider Dame as the biggest challenger here because their production and team success and offensive impact has been so similar. But Luke is putting up 28, eight and eight and a half. The Mavs have been four points per 100 better with him on the floor this year. And when you compare him to Dame, their teams have an identical on-off difference in offensive rating. They both make their team's offense 8.6 points per 100 better, a massive margin. And they're both defined by that ability to generate elite offense. Luca creates slightly more total offense. Dame is a bit more efficient. But I just think Dame is more help at the end of the day. The Blazers went three and two when he was out. The Mavs have gone two and four without Luka this year. And yes, Dame survived that initial stretch where Nurk was hurt, where CJ was hurt. But they didn't really get better when those guys got back. And I think that that kind of speaks to, first of all, obviously there are massive defensive issues, which Dame is only a part of. But I also think that it just shows how well-equipped Luka is to comparatively carry an offense because he doesn't have that second star and he hasn't had a team that has been healthy that consistently throughout this year. And I think that he's also slightly less of a minus defensively. And I think that he's better at creating for others. I think he's a higher level pick and roll force, particularly as that facilitator. And so I think that there's sort of a give and take with the two of them because obviously Dame's advantage as a shooter is so pronounced and significant. But I think that all around as scores, they're very similar. As playmakers, I lean Luka. And I think that Luka has just done slightly more to actually carry his team this year. I don't think you can go wrong with the two of them. There was a point in which I said a tiebreaker for Luka was that he was trending in the right direction while Dame had really slowed down. Now Dame has picked back up a bit as of late, so I don't know if that matters all that much. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the five spot here, so it doesn't matter all that much. Let's move into fourth. Who do you have there? Well, I want to ask something, uh, if it's cool with you, Carson. Uh, yeah. I want to touch on – it's a topic that we've we've glossed over in the past. It's two guards over having uh, – over Chris Paul uh, in this. Is he even remotely in this conversation for you? Well, I named three other guys who I considered, and none of them were Chris Paul. So hopefully that answers your question. I don't want to do the same anti-CP spiel. I'll give some of the talking points there later on why I think his contributions have been slightly overrated this year, sometimes significantly overrated. But no, he was not all that close to my top five. Okay. Um, well, at the number four spot, this will flow naturally. Uh, I've got Luca here. Um, I mean, and you you ran down the case. Uh, another number, Carson. When Luca's not on the floor, the Mavericks' offense uh, has an offensive rating of one hundred and seven point six. With Luca on the floor, obviously, they're one of the greatest of all time. One eighteen point four. It's staggering what Luca has done for this team. He has dragged them uh, in here in the similar ways that Steph has. The reason that I have Luca above Steph. It's a very minuscule difference. Those four wins to me matter, though, uh, at the end of the day. Luka has uh, – the Mavericks have more wins than the uh, Warriors. Maybe that's too binary uh, of a scope, but uh, I think it's reasonable enough they're higher in the standings. I think that means he should be higher uh, in the MVP race. But they have essentially equivalent records when Steph is actually on the court. They're 36-26 and 26 when Steph plays, which is totally competitive and in the mix for – 
that same range that the Blazers and the Mavs are in that five, six seed tie that they're in right now. So that argument to me, it just needs a little bit more context. I mean, I can talk about Luca's talent compared to the Blazers and why I think that they have more offensive firepower, the Blazers do, but the Mavs have a bunch of real quality role players. And right now we've seen the Warriors run through a couple of the best teams in the West with guys like Jordan Poole as your fourth best offensive player and guys like Juan Toscano Anderson making significant contributions. And not that those guys suck, they're kind of diamonds in the rough, but I don't think it compares to the depth of talent in Dallas where your fourth or fifth guy is probably a Jalen Brunson, a Tim Hardaway Jr., a Josh Richardson, really good NBA players who are established and have defined impact that is just on a different level. Yeah, I don't know. I guess the Mavericks injuries uh, also played into it a little bit, just that they haven't been fully healthy. But I completely agree that there's way more, there's way more wealth of talent in Dallas. Yeah, I just think Steph's better. I think that their teams have remarkably been pretty much equally good when Steph is actually out there. So to me, that just really establishes the gap between the two of them. I think very highly of Steph in this conversation. I think it's ridiculous when you say that he should be the MVP, but I think that outside of the actual MVP, he has almost as good a case as anybody. I, you think I said he should be the MVP? No, that was not specifically the okay. second person you. That was speaking generally to the public, some people who yeah. might say that. Obviously, you don't. You have him fifth. You're a freaking loon for that reason. But I have Giannis in the four spot here, who I think is just having another Giannis season. And it's not on the level of the historic greatness of what he did last year, but you put up 28, 11, and six while playing at an all defense level. Your team's significantly better with you out there. You're uber efficient. You have this tremendous gravity as a playmaker and as a scorer. And you're on an elite team. It's obviously not as exciting as it was when it was new. The Bucs aren't as good as they were the past couple years, but they're really good. Giannis is great. And I think he kind of has to be in the top five. Yeah, I've got Giannis at three. He's dominated the interior like he always has, uh, 83.3 inside three feet this season. And he's flourished with the shooters that they've put around him. Chris Middleton, Bobby Portis, Bryn Forbes. Uh, this is, I mean, yeah, you've heard it before. This is just the maximization of Giannis. They have maximized what he can do here this season in Milwaukee. He's anchored the number ninth ranked defense. Uh, I've got him at number three. And I was wrong earlier in the season, Carson. You convinced me then uh, – it's complete voter fatigue. Uh, Giannis has to be up here. And if you're not, it's just mm -hmm. because it's old and that storyline isn't fun anymore. Yeah. And that's something that we see play into every single MVP race pretty much, which is somewhat unfortunate. Although I don't think it's going to play a significant role in this year because we have so many fresh, new, exciting candidates. In my third spot, I have Steph Curry, who obviously is a revitalized candidate after not being in that conversation last year or really for a couple years when he and KD were always splitting the vote. But it's a historic offensive season. We've talked about it so much, but you put up 32, five and a half and six on 48, 42, 92 splits for a team that's winning a lot right now. You're going to draw some eyeballs. The dubs are 8.8 .8 points per 100 better with him. As I said, they're 36 and 26 when he plays, one and seven when he doesn't. And post All-Star break, specifically after coming back from that injury to his Tuchus, he has been otherworldly. 34.4 points per game post All-Star break. The dubs are 17 and 10 in that stretch with a level of talent that just shouldn't be able to achieve those heights. And a lot of that is because they've been so good on the defensive end. And Draymond is a remarkable basketball player still at this point. But you mentioned it. Guys who we thought were going to be among the more talented players on this roster, like a Kelly Oubre, like an Eric Paschal, they haven't fit and they haven't actually been able to contribute to winning. And the Warriors have been better with those guys off the floor. And Wiggins has had his moments. He's just had a phenomenal game against the Suns, probably the best game of the year for him. 
after a really slow start, but for a third best player out West for your second best scorer, certainly it's pretty remarkable to be now established as a playoff team and closer to being in that five, six range than being completely out of the play. And when your best guy is playing, that's incredible. That's because of Steph. And I really did consider him for the two spot because when he is on the court, the Warriors have won two less games than the Sixers have with Embiid out there. Like, availability is huge. And Embiid's missed 20 games, and that really matters. And whatever two-way impact Embiid has, Steph's offensive impact is just on a different level. Like, Embiid, as dominant individually as he may be, the Sixers are an average offense as a team on the year as a whole. And Steph takes this group of rugrats and he makes them functional because not only does he have the greatest gravity of any player in NBA history, right now he's arguably the best pick-and-roll scorer in basketball. He's far and away the best shooter. He's obviously remarkable finishing. And, like, all of that is just monumental. But at the end of the day, the precedent to me says if you are as good on an elite team, as singularly dominant, especially on both ends as Embiid has been, even with some missed games, I give him the slight edge there. But I think Steph has made it very close with the stretch that he's been on. And I would say that definitively with Embiid, uh, the time he's missed and what we've seen from them on the offensive end when he's off the floor, I, I don't think you can blame the 76ers' average offensive output on the season. I don't know. Just to him, like, when they're off the floor, dude, this offense does not move the same. They are – No, of course. No, and they are like, a I really would, good offense when Embiid actually plays. That's true. Their team offense is average as a whole, but they're a really good offense when Embiid plays. My point is just – as a post force who doesn't have the playmaking impact of a guy like Jokic, he cannot do for a team what Steph can on the offensive end. It's not even close. Yeah, there's the, the output has been different, and it's circumstantial, but uh, but you have Embiid officially second, correct? That is correct. I assume you do as well. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen Embiid, uh, I think, you know, you can't uh, blame, you can blame him for not having the same playmaking gravity that Steph has or uh, continue to develop in that area in the same way Jokic has. He has that same gravity in the post where the guys have to commit and have to come over. And that does create playmaking opportunities. But I mean, this season we've seen Embiid uh, take his jump shooting to a different level. He's completely dirty with that face up game. Um, and that's why he's in this spot is because he's a dependable guy late in games you can give him the rock, turn it over to him, and trust him to knock down jump shots this season. You can trust him in that role to be this go-to guy in a way that he hasn't before. And um, I think the way we've seen him without uh, – the way that this offense has performed without him on the floor, uh, he's propelled them to another level. You know, this is a mm -hmm. – uh, Carson, I think this is a completely average team uh, with Embiid not out there offensively and defensively. Uh, he dramatically – you know, like – I don't know. Steph and Luca and Dame are in completely more difficult situations, but I wonder how we look at the 76ers roster differently if Embiid wasn't here. Uh, he yeah. kicks him up a different notch and uh, I think is definitively the second guy uh, in the league this season. And the numbers back that up. His impact on winning has been as pronounced as anybody. The Sixers are 13.6 points per 100 better with him out there. That's the best mark of any star player this year. They're 38 and 11 when he plays and 9 and 11 without him. And the guy has transformed himself into one of the best offensive big men ever while he's also playing at an all-defense level and having such a tremendous impact as that rim protector on the other end. But you touched on it. We've said it so many times over. 
when he became a 50-something percent jump shooter, when his face-up game became that lethal, it was over for everybody. And now that's the point that we're at. And he's a top five player in basketball. And he's putting up 29, 11, and three on 52, 38, 86 splits. And even when he's only playing 25 minutes a game, like he has been a lot as of late, he's still going to put up 25 and he's still going to get to the line 10 or 12 times because there is no way to stop him without fouling him, basically. He is that unstoppable on all three levels now and is the best post scorer in basketball. And so I completely think that he is a deserving second guy as well. I was more trying to give props than I was take away from anything Embiid has done. I just think the... Embiid missing games factor and the tear that Curry has been on made this a lot closer than I ever expected it to be, but I still think these are our top two guys, but we have the same number one. Finally, Logan, the consensus has come around as well. Some people have continued to try to push for something else, but it's the guy who has been deserving all along, as we were saying in the first couple weeks of the season, Nikola Jokic, why don't you briefly run down why he's the guy? It's uh, what I'm, what I'm doing right here, uh, Carson, it's called a uh... Beating a dead horse, which is what nice. we do with Nikola Jokic uh, on mm -hmm. Nerd Sesh. Uh, I mean, this season, yeah, he's been otherworldly. Uh, please, if you have if not at this point, please watch Carson's video on Nikola Jokic. Uh, it's amazing. 27, 11, and 8 this season on 56, nearly 40, uh, 87 shooting splits. And I'm just going to give some of the uh, historical precedents here. He's one of two centers to average eight assists per game in a single season. Uh, Wilt is the only other in 1968. He's one of 11 players in NBA history to average 26 and eight for an entire season. He's the only center to average 26 and eight for an entire season. And he's the only center to shoot 56% uh, from the field and 39% from deep in a single season on this volume. Fun fact, the only other center to do that uh, on less volume, Thomas Bryant this season and last. Really, really wow. <laughs> he's an elite company there. Um, but <laughs> you want to talk about uh, he they've got uh, plus nearly 14 uh, offensive points per possession with him on the floor and a uh, offensive rating of 121.3 with Jokic on the floor. And I would say comparatively to the other top two candidates, in my opinion, he's had more difficult circumstances than either of them. Uh, you know, after losing his running mate in Jamal Murray and beat as two all-star caliber talents in Harrison Simmons, uh, Giannis has got two all-star caliber talents in holiday and Middleton, and they've been relatively healthy. And yet the still, still the nuggets have been dominant with or without him, you know, without Jamal Murray, he's putting up 28, 10 and eight still on 57% shooting from the field. And they're 14 and seven without him. He's had to deal with tremendous circumstances this season. And I know, like we predicted here on Nerd Sesh, Michael Porter Jr. has filled in as a transcendent scorer. And I think he is – I'm so glad you've come around on him, Carson. I, I, I knew you'd like MPJ, but um, still, it has been tough for the Nuggets and tough for Jokic without uh, Jamal. And without him, the Nuggets probably aren't even a playoff team. Yeah. I mean, they're 11-4 and four since Jamal Murray got hurt. And as you mentioned, Jokic hasn't missed a beat, and this offense hasn't missed a beat what else do you need to hear? Because it's not just that they didn't have Jamal. They won five straight without Jamal, Barton, or Monte Morris. And that, to me, was the stretch that should have eradicated any doubt in anybody's mind about a guy who was already having the greatest offensive season of any big man ever. You laid it all out there. It's all-time efficiency. It's all-time volume as a scorer and as a playmaker. He incentivizes people to play the right way. He makes everybody around him better more than anybody else in basketball. He competes on the defensive end. And yeah, he doesn't have the tools there, but he tries. He's been out there for every single game. And he's on a team that is really punching above its weight right now. And it is truly among the league's elite with right now, 
or I guess now that Barton's back, not anymore, but for a couple games, Facundo Campazzo was their third best available player. It's not like it was like that all year, but they were injured at the start of the year. Then they lost their second best player and continually they have found a way because of Jokic. He is by far the MVP. He's had one of the greatest seasons ever this year, and it'll be really fun to see how it carries over into the playoffs. Any final MVP thoughts here that we haven't already touched on? No. All right. Let's keep it moving then because we got a lot to get through. So now we're not going to go five deep for every award. We're just going to keep it to three. But let's talk about what is, in my opinion, the second biggest award, Defensive Player of the Year. Who do you have getting the bronze medal here? Uh, The bronze medal I am giving to Ben Simmons. And uh, the reason here is, uh, you know, what kind of what we talked about in B, it's the pieces around him. You know, I think Ben... Uh, you laid out a case earlier uh, for him being the best perimeter defender in the league, and I think that's fair to say, but he does have a little bit of decent help around him in mm-hmm. Joel Embiid, who's a really good rim protector, and he can feed guys in there. And he's got Matisse Thibel, who is really freaking good. Hopefully, uh, you'll have him on yours. We'll get into him mm-hmm. later, but uh, I just think that Ben has got a little bit of wealth around him. Also, he's a 6'10 guy guarding guards. Of course, that is going to be a lot easier for him. Um and, I mean, he's been elite in his role. Uh, he's great at getting into passing lanes, clamping up team's best guy. But, to me, he's got a little too much help comparable to other guys. And the Sixers have been still really good defensively without Ben on the floor. So, mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't be holding that against him. I still will. And I just don't think his impact can be felt as much as a dominant uh, center who can take over a game. Yeah. And that's the thing that you have to gauge here. And that's why – Actually, I have Draymond Green here in my three spot. And it's so tough because I was really debating him and Clint Capella because I think it's exactly the dichotomy that you touched on. It's more impactful versus better. And I think you could easily argue that Capella is more impactful. He has completely changed what is possible for the Hawks this year. Their defense is 7.3 points per 100 better with him out there. They go from the second worst defense ever to a top five unit. And he holds people 10.3% below their normal shooting at the rim. He averages 2.1 blocks per game. He's a lead on the glass. The man is damn near as good of a drop defender as there is in basketball right now. He's a force there. And we saw him win the Hawks a game just the other day. He blocked Russell Westbrook, who got downhill easily, and he saved the game for them. And he does that stuff all the time. He's playing the best basketball of his life. And so that made this a really tough call. But who is the better defender? It's Draymond Green. And I don't know how close it is in that respect. Like we see guys like a Brooke Lopez have that phenomenal season where he's playing drop coverage and he protects the rim. But Draymond has a skill set that so few people in NBA history have had. Averaging 1.7 steals a game, 0.8 blocks per game on the year, holds people 5.1% below their average field goal percentage. And I honestly considered calling an audible and moving him up to Sim, moving him up above Simmons, who spoiler alert, I have second last minute, just because Simmons obviously has really great versatility as well, but not at the level of Draymond, not where you can match him up with the league's truly best centers or just centers period night to night. And he can hang. And yeah, Simmons is the better perimeter defender, but is he the better all around defender when you consider how good Draymond is in the interior? I'm not sure because at the rim, Draymond holds people 16% below their average field goal percentage. That is the best mark there is of any volume rim protector. And he's also a brilliant communicator, such a leader on that end, so crazy switchable, able to compete at any position and be one of the best in basketball. Like just for me being in person a couple days ago at Suns Warriors, first time I've been to an NBA game physically in over a year. 
seeing the difference between CP going against a traditional big man like a Kavon Looney, who is considered to be perfectly capable out on the perimeter by those standards, and CP is just torching him time after time after time, and then suddenly it's Draymond, and Draymond either starts the possession on CP by design or immediately switches onto him, and any advantage you would think that screen would get him is nixed like that. It just helps you appreciate how important that versatility is and how all time he really is there. So maybe he should be second. Maybe I'm just going with the hive mind here because everybody said, oh, Simmons for Depoy. And I will say, I was one of the first guys to say he's the best perimeter defender in basketball. I said it over a year ago and that hype all started this season for the most part. But I'm okay with Draymond at three because I think that, I don't know, he's the best player on a really good defense. Simmons is also the best player on an even better defense. They're very close. They're both great. Neither of them are my winner. So maybe I'm overthinking it, but who do you have second? No, I'm so glad that you, uh, I want to touch on Draymond for a second. I'm so glad that you shouted him out. Uh, the rim protection role is insane. And also the mm -hmm. Warriors uh, defense goes from uh, nearly 119 to 110 with Draymond on the floor, obviously uh, subpar talent as well there. And Draymond has helped lead them to a really talented defense on the year, but I love the shout out. Um, he was really close to making the cut for me as well. Mm -hmm. I ended up going with uh, Bam Adebayo in my second spot. Mm. Um, for it's interesting. Now I think there's definitely an argument to be had uh, similarly about the help that Bam had uh, comparatively to uh, a guy like Ben Simmons and Embiid. Well, Bam has got a really good perimeter defender in Jimmy Butler who can mm -hmm. uh, help out in those ways. But uh, I think in a similar way to Draymond, man. Bam's versatility is what uh, cements yep. him in this spot for me. He is the most switchable pick-and-roll defender, I think, in basketball. And mm -hmm. he has led the Heat to still, uh, you know, an even better defense than this year, uh, improving with Jimmy. Um, when I would say that they've had uh, less help on the wings uh, after losing a guy like Jay Crowder. Uh, Oladipo is filled in well, and I hope he gets well soon. He's not going to be back for the playoffs, is he? He's out for the year? Correct. He's done that's going to hurt them. Uh, but they've had minimal help on the wings as well. And Bam has continually led this team uh, as a rim protector, but the versatility uh, is what sells at home, man. He is so smart rotationally and he can close out on shots. Um, <laughs> he is the perfect modern day big man. Oh, oh look at all up. I'm sorry, yeah. guys. It's another one of videos, uh, one of Carson's videos you should check out. <laughs> Peep it. Yeah. I think that, Bam is so important when basketball really matters because of the switchability, because of the versatility. I also think as far as the regular season goes, he doesn't always have that same individual impact on team defense like a traditional rim protector does because he's a good rim protector. He's not a truly elite rim protector. So if I'm picking my five best defenders on the planet, it's Bam out of bio. If I'm picking my top three depoy candidates, I don't know if it is just because you kind of have to go on the resume from this individual season. And I don't know if his impact was quite as pronounced as a guy like Capella, who's not as good of a defender, but was probably more impactful this regular season, in my opinion. So let me ask if I can get like a gauge of where you're at. Um, for like a ranking like this, then are you taking Miles Turner or Bam out of bio? I'm probably taking Bam. It's very close though. But I mean, we're talking about guys who are just outside of, my top four candidates might be literally in the five and six spots. So right up there in that conversation. Second, I do have Ben Simmons. I'm starting to wonder if that's right, because I think that I kind of sold myself on the Draymond pitch. Like the fact that the Warriors have a top five defense this year is crazy. And so much of that has to do with Draymond. And the Sixers are very close to the best defense in the league. But also, as you mentioned, they have a couple other guys who you could easily say are all defense and nobody would bat an eye. But 
I think that if Simmons is not the second most impactful defender, he might be the second best given his position. Holds people 5% below their normal field goal percentage. 41% is what people shoot when Simmons is their primary defender. Has some of the best hands in basketball. 1.6 steals per game. Is so hyper-aware, so mobile, so switchable, so much length in just athleticism and constant effort and engagement. I want to reward that. And it's close between him and Draymond. It's not all that close between him and the guy who I have in the one spot, though. I assume we're going to agree here. If not, I'm going to send some uh, threat virtually to you. I couldn't get the thoughts together, so I really slowed down my speech there to buy myself time, and I never found the way to say it. But who do you have winning Depoy? Yeah, um, I think a lot of – I think too many people watch inside the NBA and hear Shaq say some dumb nonsense about – you know, Rudy Gobert not scoring mm-hmm. enough and people all take it as Rudy Gobert sucks. Do not listen. Do not follow. Don't be a, don't be a sheep mind, please. Yeah. Like, Rudy Gobert is still the best defender in basketball, the most impactful. He's still a dominant rim protector. You know, we led the league in blocks among qualified defenders, uh, 2.7 per game. Players shoot 14% worse than average inside six feet on Gobert. That's the third best mark in the league. He's also very switchable. Earlier on in the year, Carson, you talked about it. Uh, players shoot 3% worse than average uh, from deep when guarded go by, by Gobert. Um, mm-hmm. And he's only 93rd percentile of players uh, defending against the pick and roll. And his elite performance is translated to elite team defense once more. Uh, he's in the 99th percentile of defensive points per possession. The Jazz uh, obviously have the number four defensive rating in the league. But the big sell on this, Carson – Still, teams attempt the uh, teams attempt and make the least threes on the Jazz defense, and attempt and make the most twos in the league. That matters. Yeah, that is so important in this conversation. The most valuable shot in basketball, Rudy Gobert limits because of his switchability and ability to close out on shots. And that that is, I'm not just going to attribute it to him, but the next best defender on this roster is Royce O'Neal. Mm-hmm. Gobert is the anchor of this team. They have a defensive rating of 103.7 with Gobert on the floor. It jumps to 15 points higher when Gobert isn't out there to, 18, uh, to 118. This is voter fatigue. If you do not have Gobert in this spot, mm-hmm. he is still the most valuable defender in basketball by far. Yeah, he's going to go down as probably one of the 10 best defensive players to ever play this game. And you gave a bunch of the numbers. I have very similar ones, but has the second best opponent field goal percentage differential of 302 qualified players. And for me, qualified is five or more field goals defended per game, 35 plus games played. People shoot seven and a half percent worse than him. You mentioned the number at the rim, 14 and a half percent worse. That's the second best differential. He allows the fourth lowest opponent field goal percentage at the rim. And their defense goes from being comfortably the best in the league with him out there to being basically the Blazers, one of the worst defenses of all time, as you said. And you mentioned the other key stat. Teams make the least threes versus them at the second lowest percentage. That is because of Gobert. That is because you see the intimidation factor every single time he steps out there with one of the longest wingspans and smartest brains to ever play basketball. That makes for a hell of a weapon. And that's what Gobert is. And he is still getting better on that end. And I just put together one of the best campaigns of his career, but he's a walking top five defense. And uh, that's just a really special thing to be. And so it's not close. He's obviously Depoy. And if you think anything else, uh, we strongly disagree. Okay, let's move on to one of the other big three awards here. Rookie of the year, Logan, a race that has gotten pretty interesting. Really a two-man race though, but I think the guy in the three spot is clear as well. Who do you have third? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, in the three spot, I've got Tyrese Talliburton. Um, I think it's been pretty clear uh, all season long between these three guys, these three guards. They stood out initially, um, but Halliburton here is in the three spot. His numbers 
may not blow you away. I mean, obviously it's because he is not, he didn't get as much rub at the start of the season. And also Mm -hmm. because of the uh, Kings heavy backcourt, you know, he's had to split time with Buddy Heald, but still in the minutes that he's gotten, he's been extremely productive and efficient 13 points per game, uh, five assists a night on over 40% shooting from deep 47% from the field. Uh, You just don't see guards that are rookie guards that are this efficient and Mm -hmm. uh, this mean this much to winning immediately and yeah um I don't think that anybody else I'm trying to think of guys that maybe Patrick Williams was outstanding this season um Mm -hmm. he really impressed me as did Desmond Bain Sadiq Bay James Wiseman but none of those guys out of the gate uh had the impact on winning that Halliburton did and that is what I think definitively puts him in that three spot Nobody's close. Just an all-around really good basketball player. The shooting translated. He can handle out of the pick and roll, make good decisions. He can push and transition. He can compete on defense. He's long. He's smart. And he's very skilled. And he is a fantastic foundational piece for Sacramento. I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't think anybody is even close to him in the three spot. I think we're going to agree on the winner here, but I'm not sure. Who do you have second? Uh, In the number two spot, I've got Ant. Um, And I don't – I don't know. I guess the case for Ant is we have seen him explode scoring-wise as of yes. recent, and uh, um, that you know we've seen the Timberwolves come away uh, with some wins. He's a he looks like a different beast. He's more confident. He's oh, never mind. Let me rephrase that. Ant's yeah. never been short on confidence. <laughs> he's just he's at he's at an all-time high now. Um, it, but it's just beautiful to see when this kid is on. He is on. He's an absolute flamethrower. He can fill it up. Uh, He's explosive into the lane. But uh, to me, the case against Ant is pretty simple. You know, he just didn't – it didn't translate to winning enough immediately when the guy who was in the one spot clearly did from day one because of the capabilities and what he brings to an offense. Ant is mostly just going to – I'm not saying he's going to be a ball hog, but he needs the ball in his hands a lot. He doesn't open Mm -hmm. up a lot of other shots for his teammates. And that matters when talking about this race and uh, contributions to overall winning and success. If you want my full thoughts on Ant, go ahead, check out the video I did on the T-Wolves. But you touched on it. Post-All-Star break, we've seen a new player putting up 23.5 on 56% true shooting in that stretch. That's like fringe All-Star level production. He's been amazing. But pre-All-Star break was half the year. And in that half, he was 15 points per game on under 47% true shooting, like unthinkably poor efficiency. And just a guy who's finding his footing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, this has no bearing on what he's going to be. What does have bearing is what he's been as of late, which is a versatile, incredibly skilled scorer and an all-time athlete who is going to dominate a lot of games because of the tools that he does have. But we didn't see it nearly as consistently in the first half of the year. And there was another guy who was ready right away to come out there and produce and contribute to a team in a number of ways that was trying to win and did win. And that's why I think you have to give it to LaMelo, who I have in my one spot. And you agree. Why is it LaMelo? Um, I mean, LaMelo was similarly efficient in a guy to, uh, like Tyrese Halliburton, uh, 44% from the field, 35% from deep. His jump shot took a minute, but once it came along, he was decently reliable. But <laughs> we talk about LaMelo a lot. He's a, he's a transcendent playmaker who, again, just mm-hmm. – from day one, could immediately just help an offense because of his great passing vision. He's got yep. stupid touch uh, when he gets into the lane, man. I love watching uh, LaMelo pull up with floaters from just inside the arc near the free throw line. That's a scary shot, but he is just such a well-rounded offensive player. He rebounds well. He moves the rock. He's got tremendous passing vision. And uh, this season, the Hornets are 23-25 and 25 with him. They're 10-11 and 11 without him. I would say 
there's not really a necessity in Charlotte immediately for him just because yeah. of how many guards they have, how many talented guys can get buckets. But he is the one who was – he was more impressive than Halliburton and more uh, – I wouldn't say he contributed – it's tough. I can't say who's more of a winning basketball player right now, but LaMelo was just clearly better than Halliburton and Ant uh, did not really translate to immediate success. So uh, team-wise, when LaMelo's clearly did. Yeah, I have LaMelo, and I just think he's put together the all-around season. And we've seen it offensively where he can be so good out of the pick and roll with the floater, with the playmaking, or he can kill you off ball. He's 40% off the catch. We've seen his playmaking on the defensive end, his good hands there. Not like he's great play to play, but 1.6 steals a game, having something of an impact there. And it's just been great because for this class, we've seen a lot of best-case scenarios. And I was never really low on this class once we actually got into the draft process, but there were question marks about all these guys. We didn't know if LaMelo was going to be able to really shoot the ball. And now we know it's one of his greatest weapons. And because of that, I think we're looking at a future superstar. And with Ant, it was always, okay, does he have the touch, the intermediate game, the playmaking, the defense? And I can't say we have resounding answers on all of that. Like it would still be nice for him to have more of a floater, more of an in-between game. And the playmaking is promising in some respects, but there might still be a ceiling on it. The defense isn't always their play to play, but we have seen is he has traits that are transcendent even within the NBA. His first step is special. That wasn't just a college thing. That's an NBA thing. When he's locked in, he is a killer jump shooter in pull-up situations. And so I just think there's a lot of stuff that bodes really well for this class as a whole. And I think that this is a really good rookie of the year race and a couple guys who are going to impact this league for a long time. And Halliburton is another guy who I liked initially in the draft process. Then I talked myself out of, and I thought, he doesn't project as a primary ball handler. And guess what? He doesn't have to be. He's just a really good basketball player who does a lot of stuff really well. And so, like I said, just a lot of best case scenarios. And we'll get into our all rookie teams later, but I think it's been a really fun class. Okay, let's move on now to sixth man of the year. I think there's a lot of good candidates here, but who do you have in the three spot? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the three spot was tough to choose between my guy and Shake Milton, who I want to touch on briefly. Uh, I think Milton... Uh, come playoff time might be one of the most valuable six men in the league just because of the role he's going to have for Philadelphia and because mm -hmm. of his talents on the court, what a great shot maker he is in the mid-range, um, how he's able to get to his shots, how he's able to knock them down in traffic. I went with a guy who, in my opinion, just does a little more for winning basketball and uh, is a little more versatile. That's uh, what we like here at Nerd Sesh. I went with Jalen Brunson as my three spot. This is it's my guy, man. I, he's, my, yeah. he's still my Twitter header. This is, this is my boy. <laughs> uh, Nearly 13 points per game this season, three boards, three assists on 52-39-79 shooting splits. And, you know, his numbers off the bench may not blow you away uh, comparatively to some of these other scorers, guys who just fill it up. But like I said, he does so many little stuff, uh, little things. He's a great uh, off-ball relocator and catch-and-shooter. He's – I'm just going to – I'm going to be repetitive here. You know what, man? He's right in transition. He's a great cutter. Watch my YouTube video on Jalen Brunson. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty sweet. Um, but – Brunson's impact has been felt, man. They needed – he's the perfect guy who can play alongside Luka and lead an offense off the bench. And he's, he's just a well-rounded basketball player, a guy you want on your team. 100%. Same reasons I have Brunson third. When you can be 93rd percentile to the pick and roll and also make 43% of your threes off the catch and then also shoot better than 50% from mid-range, you are a great basketball player I want on my team. He's cerebral. He impacts the game in all of its phases. And I think that there are a lot of other guys who deserve a mention here. I consider Trez. I consider TJ McConnell, Thaddeus Young, Gallo, Shake, Chris Boucher. We'll throw in there as an honorable mention. 
And I think that the stiffest competition was probably Trez because this is the reigning sixth man of the year who I think has been better than he was last year, has a more well-rounded game with now some of the face-up stuff that he's added and is as competitive and as much of a dog as ever. It's just with a lot less volume, but it's what you said. I just think that Brunson's impact is much more multifaceted. And you could argue that guys like McConnell and Thad would like a word in that conversation because they bring a variety of things for TJ. It's the playmaking. It's the defense for Thad. It's also kind of the playmaking, the defense, and the ability to get a bucket as well. I just think Brunson is better than both of them. I think he's a more efficient player, and I think he's a guy who translates to winning in an easier way because both those guys are a little bit funky. TJ can't really shoot the ball, and that limits what you can be in some situations. And Thad, kind of weird to have Thad as like your high post playmaking hub. I don't know that that works on a really good team. It works situationally. Jalen Brunson works anywhere, and I think he worked the best of any of them this year. So now we're looking at our top two. And this final result, I think, is something of a foregone conclusion as far as who the voters will actually pick. Jordan Clarkson is a massive favorite but I said at the midseason point that I thought it should be co-sixth man of the year. My thoughts have changed since then. I won't say in which direction, but who do you have second here, Logan? Um, I have Joe Ingles here in second, and uh, you swayed me back then to convince me that he should be here, and I think there's a lot of uh, really good reasons why. You want to talk about Brunson fitting air, uh, anywhere Joe Ingles would. Mm-hmm. He's a great shooter, and not just great, man. He's had the 22nd uh, highest true shooting percentage uh, in a single season of all time. He is a stupid efficient shooter. He doesn't mm-hmm. miss. He's uh, a sneaky good passer. You can look up highlights of him, you know, throwing roll passes on the ground. Uh, he's smart. He's cerebral in a way of a point guard in the way he moves the basketball. He's got great touch, great vision. And Joe Ingles may not play like the prettiest brand of basketball for you, man, but he's a <laughs> he's a really good offensive player. It's he, I wouldn't call him pretty, but he's a uh, – his game is yeah I think his game is beautiful and he's not just a sneaky good passer he's a great passer like he's one of the best passers in the league if you extend that to I don't know 20 names or so like he is just a phenomenal basketball player so I don't have him second I have him first and at the midseason point I said it's been all about Clarkson I think Ingles arguably does more to impact winning we'll call it a draw they're both so special to what makes Utah so great and we'll reward both of them But Clarkson has taken a downward turn since then. Since All-Star break, he's shooting sub 40% from the field, 31% from three. And he has nights like he did against the Warriors a couple games ago where he drops 41. And you just think, that dude's bag is so deep. That man is a three-level scorer who is one of the most confident players in the league. And that's a terrifying thing to have to face. But he scores a below average efficiency on the year as a whole, and he doesn't do anything else. And I like Jordan Clarkson. This is not going to be anti-Jordan Clarkson, but the Jazz are four points per 100 worse with him on the floor this year, and Joe Ingles does everything well. 12-4-5 on 68% true shooting, as you mentioned, 46% from deep. He's a 78th percentile pick-and-roll scorer, can really run offense in those stretches, who also shoots 49% from deep off the catch, can fit in with any unit, is a brilliant playmaker, It makes you better on both ends. Defensively, has a legitimate impact. The dude is feisty. He's smart. He's got good hands. Holds people 5% below their average field goal percentage. That's a top 15 mark in basketball among qualified players. So I guess it just comes down to what else do you want? Are we just going with the traditional definition of the guy who's going to score the most points off the bench? Are we going to go with the guy who I think actually impacts winning the most and is the best player who I want on my team? If we're going with the latter, which is what I'm going with, I think it's singles by a lot. Do you disagree? 
I think it's really close. The one thing I touch on though is you say those nights uh, where Jordan Clarkson goes off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he really feels like a special transcendent three-level scorer. I would agree, but I think there's like a – I don't know, man. I, I feel like most people realize or should realize that if Clarkson's jump shot isn't hitting, he is a complete non-factor to have yes. on the team. So maybe it's a good reason to knock him off. I mean, but like Jordan Clarkson's game, dude, he is horrible at finishing around the rack. He is not good at – he's not good at dealing through contact. He's not really good at getting to the rim at all because he lacks that – burst he's a little sneaky and slithery in the lane but he his game is so much more predicated on knocking down those tough jumpers in the mid-range and around the perimeter if oh i think you've talked me into it man yeah you're darn right i have and it's just interesting because Ingles isn't really going to get all that much consideration at all but i think he obviously should he's a perfect role player damn you carson breber and your tremendous arguments is that an official change Yes, I'm going with Joe Ingles. Let's go, baby. All right. That was the goal for today. Get Logan to change one of his awards. And we did it already with a couple to spare. Any other people you want to shout out here before we move on? Um, did you say Christian Wood at all? I mean, I just, I like to shout the man out. <laughs> for sixth man of the year? Logan, you're misunderstanding what shout out is. I don't just mean generally. I mean specifically for what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, I'll shout out Dennis Smith Jr. Okay, all right, you're done here. Let's move on to Coach of the Year, which I think is another really <laughs> interesting one. Who do you have in the three spot here? Um, in the three spot, I've got Tom Thibodeau. And, I mean, I think the, the reason that Thibodeau is in my three spot and not any higher is another reason that I don't want them to give him the award – Thibodeau's case is so narrative-based, I feel like. And it's mm. it, just because the Knicks haven't been good in so long and he has helped them get here. I'm not saying it's not impressive. But Thibodeau does this with every roster that he has. You know, he slows the game down. And I just feel like Tibbs shouldn't be rewarded for doing the same thing that he's done everywhere he's gone. I'm not, again, it's, I'm not saying it's not impressive. The Knicks don't have a wealth of talent around them. Their best players are Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett. He deserves credit for getting them to 38 wins in a, uh, a chance to you know, win a playoff series this year. But I feel like the majority of this has been narrative-based. Not that he's got an excellent team defense, and I don't want to take that away from him, but it's, it's what Tibbs has always done, and it's not like the Knicks are anything special when I think the two other candidates here – have been way more impressive in what they've done with their stiff competition. I can't say a majority of it is narrative-based. I think a segment of it is narrative-based because it's in New York, obviously, and it's such a starved basketball team. But the Knicks have shattered my expectations, more so than, honestly, maybe any team in my entire life. And I really thought about having Tibbs in my number one spot. I have him second. I'll just give my spiel on him now, though, because I thought this team would win 14 games, Logan. One of my worst takes ever. I thought they were going to be the worst team in the league. And it's tough to isolate his impact in some respects from individual players. Like how much credit does he deserve for Randall's development? Becoming a more reliable jump shooter and a more savvy playmaker? Probably not all that much. That's probably more about Julius because those aren't exactly areas in which Tibbs teams generally excel. How much credit does he deserve for RJ getting better throughout this year? Primarily as a shooter. Tough to say. But what you can isolate is the fact that With very similar defensive personnel last year, they were 23rd in defensive rating, and now they're fourth. 
That's coaching. That's understanding an identity and committing to it in a way that actually helps you win games. And that's what Tibbs has done. And is it going to take this team to be a contender? No, but how the hell could you expect that given the talent that is on this roster? Because they maximize value. From the guys we mentioned to Burks to D. Rose, they just get great guys, or excuse me, they get guys who aren't great to play in a way that actually leads to winning. But I do think there's a guy who ultimately just coached a team to be great in a way that matters a little bit more because the jump from terrible to above average is really impressive, but the jump from above average to all-time great is a little more impressive, and that's why I have a different guy in my number one spot. But any final comments on Tibbs? That's a that's the guy who I should have shouted out for sixth man of the year, man. Uh, Derek Rose. Yeah. Dude, I mean, um, the Terry's been on late has been phenomenal. Dude, well, I just – in. I don't, the Knicks desperately need someone like him to fill it up. I will say, mm-hmm. I am tired at this point, man. Every time he touches the rock and I hear whoever's on commentary that night talk about vintage D. Rose, I don't want to talk about old D. Yeah. Rose anymore, man. The one that we have now is still an excellent basketball player, man. He is yeah. – and now he's an, he's an excellent jump shooter. He's, he is the total package off the bench. I wish I had given him a shout-out. But, uh, yeah, nah, Tibbs deserves credit. Um. It's interesting that people say Vintage D. Rose also just because he plays nothing like Vintage D. Rose. Like, it's so much more yeah. about the jump shooting. I mean, he's still quicker than 90% of people out there, but there was a time when he was quicker than 100% of people out there, and he's just a different player who's still really good, as you mentioned. But who do you have second? I actually, At let me get my two. third guy first of all, because oh, I yeah. talked about Tibbs, <laughs> who I have second. I have Monty Williams third, who I think is probably going to win this award, and I can understand it because everybody on this roster progressed. Macau got better. Cam Johnson got better. Campaign, oh boy, did he get better. He has Torrey Craig playing the best basketball of his career. And this team has a clear two-way identity and they're elite. I just think there's another coach for whom all those things are true as well, for whom I had very similar expectations, whose team has just been better and who has impressed me a little bit more. So I don't really see his case over that guy, but I think Monty's done a phenomenal job and is certainly deserving as a top three candidate. No, Monty deserves a lot of credit, um, you know, even dating back to when we saw this team go 8-0 in the bubble. I mean, he, yep. was, he was a big proponent of that, but he's also been a big proponent of what this team's done this year. But you touched on it, Carson. I think this is a much improved uh, team roster-wise, uh, adding Chris Paul, seeing a big jump from these players, adding Jake Crowder. He deserves his credit, but I think that wherever the standings shake out to end this season is where the award should go, and ultimately the – uh, sons are not in the one seed uh, out west. So you have Monty too. Who do you have number one? I have Quinn Snyder. Uh, I assume we will agree here. Uh, and I just think in this instance, you know, we, we haven't seen, and I know why you think that Monty will get it as well because of the dramatic turnover from last season, finally getting this team over the hump into contention, into this two mm-hmm. spot. I think consistency deserves to be rewarded here with Quinn Snyder. Uh, yeah. They have consistently been great, and I think part of it is due to the cohesion of this roster. Obviously, they've played together so long, but Quinn Snyder's been there for every bit of it, too, and mm-hmm. they are lead again this year. Top five in offensive rating, top five in defensive rating, the number one net rating in basketball. They went on the longest win streak of this season. We shouldn't forget about these things, and we shouldn't go with where the narrative has taken us, which I think is to traditionally, as it's been in coverage of NBA media again this season, just completely overlooking Utah, we go to the mm-hmm. narrative of the Suns. Um, Quinn Snyder has been consistently great, and the Jazz were 
a the best team in basketball this season. I think consistency needs to be rewarded uh, with this award. Yeah, I have Snyder number one as well, and the reason is I had almost identical expectations for the Suns and the Jazz, and one team has overperformed by more. As you mentioned, they've been truly elite on both ends. They've shot the ball from three at a higher volume than any team in NBA history with success, and just everything has gelled beautifully. And so much of that has to do with Snyder because they entered this year with real questions. Like, this team had a disappointing end of last year with Bojan out, with just the Conley fit not really working. And then Conley finds that role, and now he made the damn all-star team. He shouldn't have, but he was great this season. And this is just a team that plays together so well and maximizes everybody's strengths. And I also think, not only are they the, they the best team, and things like net rating will tell you they're the best team by even a wider margin than record does. They also haven't had the Suns' crazy injury luck. Phoenix's top four guys have missed five games combined this year. Logan, that happens once a half decade, man. Like, that is crazy luck. And the Suns are really good, but the Jazz have dominated without some of their best players. They're 15-6 and six without Conley. They're 11-6 and six without Mitchell. We've seen them win a majority of their games without both of those guys. And they may have more talent to top to bottom than the Suns. I think that we already touched on, you know, they have two of the best six man of the year candidates. Another guy, their last person who will probably be playing real playoff minutes is Derek Favors. Maybe Nyang gets out there, but Nyang is fine as well. Versus the Suns, who the question was kind of their role players and their role players have ended up excelling. So you could say that's an argument in Monty's favor. But I just think it comes down to similar expectations. One team's better than the other. They've had to endure more injury stuff. And they have been so superb on both ends and so consistently dominant that I think you have to reward the guy at the top of that because they've done it without a superstar. Unless you consider Gobert or Mitchell a superstar, which I don't think that you can because the case is tough to make for Mitchell. When he wasn't playing his best basketball, they were still elite. Without him, they've still won games. And so... That's just the machine that is the Jazz, and I think that Quinn Snyder is the mechanic behind that. All right, last award here, most improved. Who do you have in the three spot? Uh, at the three spot, it was really tough to decide between two guys, Carson. Uh, the guy I ended up leaving off was Jeremy Grant, and it's weird because, I mean, he took such a big leap, but it didn't, I don't know, it didn't matter in Detroit. He improved playmaking-wise, jump-shooting-wise, defensively. All of his categories, obviously some of that due to volume of opportunity. In the three spot, I went with Zion Williamson. And his straight-up numbers may not blow you away, 22.5 to 27, two assists a night to four, six boards to seven. But with the – I guess with the questions that I had about Zion's game after the first 24 in the first season, I don't have any more. I know that he's going to be mm -hmm. an impact player on winning, and he is – He's improved into a really good playmaker and ball handler in the half court. He's a completely – he's the most dominating interior force in the NBA today. And it's – there were just questions that I had about his game last year that I don't anymore. And I think that's why he's in the top three. But also it is it is translated to winning in New Orleans where I, I think Zion can be a winning basketball player and Jeremy, Jeremy Grant is ultimately – this is why I left him off. Grant is ultimately a guy that – um, <laughs> I don't want being the best player on my basketball team. And it's why we saw such a dramatic increase in his numbers. I concur. I think that Zion is uh, one of the three most improved players in basketball this year. But when it comes to most improved player, I just try to avoid second year guys because 
that's just kind of the precedent that we have. And if you're not giving them the award at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Maybe I should have Zion here in my top three. I considered MPJ too, but I just don't like giving it to second year guys. So you make a very strong case. My faith in Zion compared to what it was last year has skyrocketed. My perception of him as a player has completely changed to where I think he is now an undeniable all-time special offensive force. He's getting better defensively too. These are things that I didn't expect to be saying about him at 20 years old, but that's kind of the thing. He's 20 years old. And when you're still finding your footing in the league to that extent, when you're that young, I just don't think that's what most improved is really about. But I mean, he's phenomenally improved. No doubt about that. But I have a couple guys who have stuck around and have taken that leap deeper into their career. And at three, I have Jalen Brown, who definitely has not gotten better by as much as Zion did, but up to scoring by 4.3 points per game, up to his assist per game by 1.1. And I just think got better facilitating, got better handling out of the pick and roll, just became a more well-rounded offensive force to where now I just have more faith in him creating for himself and having a truly dominant scoring night. And that was always the question with him. It's okay. He can score 20 points per game. He can be that great off ball player who can get his own shot in spots and defend at a high level. But can he actually be a co-best offensive player on a good team? And yeah, he's not as good as Tatum. So I guess he's not truly a co-best offensive player, but he's a second offensive star. And maybe the Celtics underachieved, but it's not Jalen's fault. And I think he got a lot better. And I think he got better in a way that is meaningful. Like he didn't go from scoring nine points per game on the Pistons to 15 points per game on the Pistons. That's not a shot at Jeremy Grant because I actually have him on my list and he is obviously scoring more than 15 a game. But the 20 to 25 jump is a big one. And it's a jump that I wasn't sure he could take. And I think he should be commended for that. So I have Jalen at three. Who do you have second? Yeah, uh, I consider Jalen as well. Um, I just feel like this recent stretch has uh, cooled me on him a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I have a guy that you brought up in my number two spot. And maybe maybe in the general spirit of the award, you make a really good case that I shouldn't have MPJ here just because it's not traditionally how it goes. But uh, I did end up going with Michael Porter Jr., um, a 10-point increase from last season, 9 to 19. And – We've just seen him have such a more volume of opportunity in this offense, um, and he has thrived. You know, I feel like the 19 points per game is misleading to a lot of people with what he's done uh, in these last 15, like without Murray, mm -hmm. on a team where I guess he is getting fed a lot, and it's a perfect situation here for him in Denver where all he is expected to do is knock down tough shots, get to his spots, and put, put the ball in the bucket. Mm -hmm. It's where it's a perfect, it's a perfect situation for him, but he has thrived in a 25 points per game on nearly 58, 51 shooting splits in his last 15. And I guess maybe you can make a case that he was this good at shot making last year. Maybe this is why he shouldn't be here. I just think the scoring increase, the, the weight that has been expected of him in Denver, he's lived up to everything they've asked of him. And yeah, I think it deserves to be rewarded, man, a bigger opportunity. And he is continually balled out. He is an elite shot maker and he can't do he can't do anything else on the floor. <laughs> he's so offensively unaware. I don't care, man. This guy gets buckets, and he's a guy I'd want on my roster. What I think is interesting to sort of ponder is if MBJ had this kind of touches last year, could he have done the same thing? Because the shot was this special last year, and like he got this scary look in his eyes sometimes where he said, "Okay, I'm the best player on the court. I'm going to go take a bad shot," and that wasn't fun to see, but. When he was getting it in the right spots, he was pretty special to watch at some points last year. So I agree with you. He's gotten a lot better, been a phenomenal jump. And there's a case you can make that second-year guys, when they take a jump that is this meaningful, belong in the conversation, like what we saw from SGA 
or Luca last year, guys who really took that massive jump in their second year and still earned consideration. But at the end of the day, it went to the guy who had been around for longer and then took that more surprising jump in BI. And that's kind of just how I generally lean with this award. But the guy who I have in my second spot, definitely not as meaningful of a jump as Zion or as MPJ, but I do have Jeremy Grant. And he cooled down a lot, obviously, as the year went along. There was a time where he was averaging 24 game efficiently, and that was pretty exciting. And then cooled down, got hurt. Pistons are terrible. So understandably, people cooled on that conversation a bit. But I just think his skill actually has improved. His handle, his ability to get downhill is better. And when you can increase your scoring by 10 points per game and still hover just a bit below league average efficiency, where you can say, okay, that's somewhat legitimate, I think that deserves to be rewarded. And yeah, I don't think Jeremy Grant is ever going to be the best or the second best player on a really good team, but he's pretty darn good, man. And he can play both ends. And I think his passing is a little bit better too. And being the number one option on any team is really hard and being able to do that and score again, 22 points per game and have tangible improvement in your skill set is really impressive. So I have him second. Who do you have winning this whole thing? Uh, I think in the general spirit of this award and how it normally goes, I think we're going to agree. Uh, it's Julius Randall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a dude who, when he entered the league was a back to basket athletic, you know, rim rolling, guy who you know couldn't defend or anything he he gives effort on defense now he is handling it's he's knocking down shots it's I never thought Julius Randle could become what he has this season and uh, yep. just from last for context uh, goes from 19 and a half points per game to 24 nine and a half boards to 10 uh, three and a half assists a night to six um, and from 27 percent uh, from deep to 42 nearly it's it's crazy. It's night and day. And the strangest thing is, Carson, when Julius Randle is not on the floor, the Knicks don't score. The Knicks mm-hmm. struggle and fight. And, like, they are completely inept with Randle off of the uh, – out of the game. And sometimes the uh, the Knicks offense will come to a standstill where Randle will be forced to take these uh, take these mid-range jumpers in the lane and have dudes in his face. And he is good at knocking them down now. The biggest improvement we have seen is that difficult shot making from Julius Randle, the three ball this year, but we've also seen him come a far piece in playmaking and handling the rock and just taking a bigger offensive load. It's somewhere I never expected Randle to get, and he he has exceeded all of my expectations for his career. Um, I was wrong about this guy. Yeah, he's a no-brainer choice. It's really an awesome story all around, and I'll always regret at the beginning of the year I tweeted about his jump shooting improvement and compared the numbers compared to last year and his whole career and said, this is the definition of unsustainable. And it wasn't, he's just a better shooter. And you mentioned the ability to get into the mid range, the ability to knock down the open threes, the ability to be the best offensive player on a team that is firmly in the playoff discussion, even though the offense isn't their strength. It's just a kind of player that I never thought he could be his understanding of how to utilize his gravity as a playmaker is so impressive. Like the dude collapses defenses, man. He is Tough to stop when he's getting downhill, and then he can also navigate that mid-range area and beat you there. The defensive growth is tremendous. And again, these are just things that I never thought were possible. I didn't expect him to shoot 14% better from three or score four and a half more points per game or put up three more assists per game on a team that is also way better. And I don't know if people ever get carried away with it. Like, it'll be interesting to see how we feel about it when we get into the All-NBA discussion, but he is certainly the most improved player in basketball this year in a way that is really, really meaningful and as deserving of a winner of this award as we've had 
you know, we always have a deserving a winner for this, but he certainly is one as well. Any other honorable mentions you want to shout out here? Um, no, I meant to uh, shout out Christian Wood for this award. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I would shout him out as well. I just think Christian Wood was so good last year that he doesn't deserve to be the winner or anything. It was partly volume of opportunity, getting to show what he could really do. But I still think he got better. I think he was more comfortable with the floater. I think he was more comfortable shooting from deep. I think he was more impactful defensively. He makes a strong case as well. That guy is so, so good. And it's going to be so fun to see him again in a motivated situation next year because it's been fun watching the Rockets lately, man. I'm not going to lie. I'm fascinated by Olenek. I love Armani Brooks. I love seeing guys out there who like, I've just never played basketball, but kind of look competent. But Christian Wood is their best player, and him alongside a really good rookie next year, count me in, man. That's going to be fun. That concludes our awards portion of the show. It took us about an hour. So if we can keep this segment to the same length, I think that that's a reasonable enough amount of time to expect you guys to listen through. Let's start with All-NBA. First team. I'm just going to read out who I have, and then we can talk about anything that is surprising because I think that some of these are no-brainers. I have Steph and Luka in my backcourt. I have Giannis and LeBron in my frontcourt, and I have Jokic in my center spot. Who do you have? And then we'll discuss our differences and what stands out to us. So I also have Steph, Luka, Giannis, and Jokic. I ended up going with Kawhi Leonard instead of LeBron for my last forward spot. Okay. So I think that there's three absolute no-brainers here. Steph, Giannis, and Jokic. I think some people will have a division between Luka and Dame, maybe even Luka and CP, depending on how they view his value. But let's start with LeBron versus Kawhi. So this was something that I had to really think about how I want to wait because it's weird having LeBron on first team with 43 games played. But when it came down to it, it was either him with 43 or Kawhi with 51. And I don't know if that gap really matters enough. Both those guys are missing a significant chunk of the season. And in this weird year, where so many of the candidates for these All-NBA and award recognitions have missed a decent chunk of the year, I say it's not enough to actually impact who I think was the better player on this year because I think LeBron is just better than Kawhi. 25, 8, and 8 on 51, 37, 70 splits. His team was 28 and 15 with him. They were 12 and 15 without him. They're 11 points per 100 better with him on the floor. Defensively, held opponents to 41% shooting when he was out there. Yes, Kawhi is on the better team, and Kawhi has been out there a little bit more on the year, but I also think that LeBron's value was in part showed by the collapse that occurred with the Lakers when he was out there. And, you know, they started to play a little bit better as of late. AD's kind of started to put the team on his back, but he's got to get back out there soon enough so they can really get into form for the playoffs. But to me, he's still the best player in the world. He wasn't the best player this regular season. That was a guy named Nikola Jokic. But... I think he was better than Kawhi when he was out there and eight games isn't enough for me to ultimately make my decision based on how healthy were you. You're a persuasive silver tongue <laughs> snake, Carson. Um, the, the logical part of my brain right here is telling me to go with LeBron. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just think maybe this is recency bias, but without LeBron, uh, the Lakers are completely incompetent watching Alex yeah. Caruso and this cast of characters try to become primary ball handlers without him. That's that's the big part in this LeBron discussion that is that is eating me on here is just that the Lakers just suck without LeBron or mm-hmm. they just they stink without him and he's also been without AD as well among other injury issues with the Lakers so I'm gonna stick to my guns I'm gonna stick with Kawhi just because he has been a little more healthy he's been out there more and I feel like I can't even say that I was gonna say their impact is comparable on the court it's not 
The yeah. Lakers without LeBron are they stink. I can't even I cannot make a I can't make a full hearted argument for Kawhi here because the logical part of my brain says LeBron, but I'm just gonna go with the health part. I'm gonna say that LeBron wasn't healthy enough to get the first team nod. Yeah, that's fair. It's just weird how we have to draw lines in the sands here because we're kind of in unprecedented territory where they've both missed a good amount of games. I will say the Clippers 11 and seven when Kawhi is not out there. So definitely fare better as a team. If I can persuade you to join me, but I understand it. I think I'm going to be an odd man out having LeBron first team. I think most people will have Kawhi. And again, it's just a weird negotiation. Let's briefly talk about Luca Dame. I basically already made my case with the MVP discussion. I laid it all out there. Is there anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, I just – we touched on it before. Dame has, Dame has more to work with, more guys who can take the load off of him. Luka in late-game scenarios is the – he's the only guy this offense can reliably uh, create their own shot. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's particularly close unless you, like you said, want to go to the, the shooting numbers, which are the only thing that favor Dame. Yeah, I think that it's close, but I think that another tiebreaker for Luka is just that I believe he's the better basketball player. And uh, I think that's a fair enough tiebreaker if you're talking about guys who have really similar resumes. So we largely agree on first team. Let's get into second team. So here I have Dame, as we kind of just hinted at, James Harden as his backcourt mate, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, and Joel Embiid. Who do you have? Okay, so we do have some differences. Uh, I have got Dame as well. I've got Bradley Beal at the other guard spot, then LeBron, Paul George, and Joel Embiid. Very interesting. Okay. So Kawhi, Dame, Embiid, all no-brainers. It's a bummer Embiid can't be on first team. He was absolutely one of the five best players in basketball this year. He's technically eligible at forward, and that is part of the stupidity of how we do all NBA stuff because there are few centers who are further away from being a forward than Joel Embiid. He is as pure of a five as there is. But when we decide, hey, we want to give him a shot at this stuff, we say he can be a forward, I'm not going to do it. If I can't reasonably look in the mirror and say, yeah, that guy's kind of that position, I'm not going to try to break these dumb rules that we created that don't make any sense. But let's look at where we disagree. So Harden versus Beal. I'll make the case for Harden first. So putting up 25, 8, and 11 on 47, 36, 87 splits on the year and has just had a tremendous impact on winning. The Nets are 28 and 7 with him since he got there. They're 11 and 11 without him. And it's another one that kind of falls in the gray area because 43 games played, it's the same as LeBron. That's an abnormally small number for All-NBA in a normal year, but it's not enough to persuade me to keep him off when I think he's really been the Nets' best player this year. And KD is the guy I expect to be their best player come playoffs, but his command of the game, his ability to tone down the ISO a little bit and remain equally dominant there, still a huge portion of his game, still maybe the best in basketball there, but you know, integrate a little bit more into a different system to lean more playmaking heavy where out of the pick and roll, the guys just as avant dotting up shooters, dotting up lob threats off the roll. All of that to me has just been a demonstration of why he is truly an all time great offensive talent. Why we can see him have years like 2017, where he is that dominant playmaking scoring combo force and why we can see him have years like the past couple before this, where he's putting up 36 a game. He's just one of the best offensive players ever. And it's difficult, again, because of the games missed, but it's not enough. And I think that just the difference in the net success with and without him out there is telling to me and something I wanted to reward him for. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe I'm unfairly holding guys' games played against them. It's just – it's so weird to do in a 
in a shortened season where guys have missed time due to yeah. jumping immediately into the season. We don't have a full off season. It was hard to gauge. Um, for me, I don't think Beal's gravity is felt nearly nearly as much as James Harden. He's the better mm-hmm. player, but uh, the 16 more games played to me mattered. He's dealing with extreme circumstances, and I feel like we have seen Beal, at least more towards the start of the season, we've seen Russ kind of take back over, handling the ball primarily a lot, uh, putting his stamp on games. Beal has improved a little bit as a playmaker, um, and sometimes the Wizards don't win when Beal puts up 40, but if he doesn't put up uh, – what he does tonight, they don't have a single chance at winning. So I feel like his gravity, just based on the outcome uh, for his team, for the Wizards, uh, has been close to what uh, Harden has to perform similarly for the Nets uh, to win in the way that uh, the Wizards need Beal every single night. So Mm -hmm. the games played is ultimately what made the difference between putting Harden on the second or third team. I am going to hold it against him, though. That's fair enough. And you're probably more in line with most people's thinking. Like the precedent has generally been you miss 20-something, 30 games, you're not going to be first or second team for the most part. Like when LeBron missed 30 games, he was third team, I'm pretty sure. In 17-18, when Steph only played 51 games, he was third team. But this year is just so weird, and some of these guys have been so good. And the guys who they're competing with in some cases have also missed, you know, if it's eight less games. That's just not enough of a gap for me. And so I do want to reward Harden there just because I think when they're both out there, it's not all that close. Beal is phenomenal. Beal is utterly phenomenal. Doesn't get enough credit. It's become all about Russ and Washington, even though Beal is so much better, but Harden is a lot better than both of them. Our other difference, Jimmy Butler versus Paul George. I'll let you start on this one. Why PG? Uh, The reason I went with PG over Jimmy is uh, obviously the team standing there, uh, their top three out West. Um, it's hard because, you know, do I reward I, I, the games played came into, I'm trying to just here, I'll, I'll let me organize my thoughts here. So Jimmy yeah, please. first out East, the reason that I delegated him to third team, uh, Jimmy is a still a dominant playmaker. They need him in that role. Um, he's uh, the best playmaking we've seen out of Jimmy before. Um, he's a still a great defender out there on the perimeter. But I'm going to hold the games played against him. I'm going to hold the lack of talent around him irrationally against Jimmy because it didn't uh, come out to wins. Because I think that uh, Paul is in, obviously, a supreme situation to Jimmy. He's got so much more help around him in having a bigger star to lean on in Kawhi. Granted, Jimmy has Bam. Kawhi is way better um, and much more help. They've got more shooters in this team. They've got uh, a better – they've just got so much more help around him comparatively. But to me – the jump that we've seen from Paul, he is a the, he's a necessary secondary playmaker. He's improved, and his shot has been falling all season long. He's he's somebody they can rely on. But uh, just the difference between him and Jimmy is that I am going to hold the standings against them, and and the games missed from Jimmy Butler. But I do think that Paul has definitively way more help around him than Jimmy. Is the games missed between them that much of a difference? Paul has played 53. Jimmy has played 51. So I don't know if that's fair. But to me, it just comes down to the all-around two-way impact with Jimmy and the ability to be the clear-cut best guy on a team that looks completely different when he is out there versus when he's not out there. Like, I think that Paul is having an amazing season. And I think that the evolution we've seen from him as a playmaking, what he's doing as a shooter right now, 
it's all time stuff in some ways, but I just think Jimmy changes the game in every phase. The Heat are 10.6 points per 100 better with him out there. They're 32 and 19 when he plays. They're 6 and 12 when he doesn't. And we saw what their offense was without him. We saw what their defense was. They're way better on both ends. Offensively, four points per 100 better with him out there. Go from a bottom five unit without him to almost a top 10 unit with him. Defensively, they're seven points per 100 better. Go from a bottom five unit without him to a top three unit with him. And the raw production is certainly impressive. 21 and a half, seven and seven. The way that he's able to be efficient is not all that conventional because it's without the three-point shot. It's so much about free throws, but he does this on 60% true shooting. Basically exactly the same as PG, slightly better, I think. And defensively is just having a phenomenal season. Is just so clearly out to prove something every night. I think has to be all defense as well. And PG obviously has the tools to be a great defender, but hasn't been as committed to that end night to night on this year as Jimmy has been. And Jimmy just is everything for this team. He's the primary ball handler. He's the guy who's running pick and roll. He's the guy who's locking up the opposing team's best player on the other end. He's scoring more efficiently. And I'm just going to go with that guy. I mean, should we hold that Paul does have more help and doesn't have to be carry as big a load against him? I mean, we've I'm seen not Paul George do this. Him. Have we seen PG do this completely change a team like this where the Heat looked dead in the water without him? And when he's out there, they're playing like one of the four best teams out East by record. I don't know that we've seen anybody else do that. When I say anybody else, I mean Paul George. I don't mean the season. I mean, back when he was in Indiana, like with uh, so little help around him, like if Paul George is in Miami, he's probably doing Jimmy Butler-esque things and helping this team win more games. I just, I think situationally, this shouldn't come up. I think George has been more efficient than Jimmy. I think well, he, he would be a similar playmaking engine if the Heat, if he needed to be. He hasn't been more efficient, though. His true shooting percentage is lower. All right, bro, Jimmy can't hit a three. He doesn't have to because he gets to the line every other possession. It's the most the man, valuable shot in basketball. It matters. The free throw is the most valuable shot in basketball. And he gets... Okay, George Mikan. Uh, shut up, bro. <laughs> look, I just think Jimmy's all-around impact is on a different level, and I think he's shown why he's such a special basketball player this season. He's affirmed what we saw in last year's finals. The man just makes a team so much better in so many ways, and I think he's kind of getting slept on in this. I saw KOC's All-NBA teams. He didn't have Jimmy at all. And I was offended and hurt by that. Okay, let's move on to third team now. I'll tell you who I have. I have Kyrie, Bradley Beal, Paul George, Zion Williamson, and Rudy Gobert. Who do you have? I have Trey Young, James Harden, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, and Rudy Gobert. Whoa, Trey Young. I did not see coming. Okay, let's start with that one then. Wow, we have so much more to get into with this team than we did with the first two. All right, so why Trey Young? I went with Trey. I when he is on the floor, uh, this it's mainly it's like the Luca effect, you know. I mean, this offense. I'm not saying they can't move without him. They move so much worse. Bogey filled in really well during that stretch, and maybe that would be the counter to uh, the offense not being fluid. Uh, Bogey was exceptional when this team needed him to be, but. Uh, on the whole, on this year, uh, 
the Hawks offense has an offensive rating of 119.5 with Trey on the floor and off. They drop by over 10 points to 109.1. He's in the 99th percentile of offensive points per possession. I just think he has been more necessary than other guys where, look, man, this was – the Trey pick was my hardest uh, out of this. I had to leave off Donovan Mitchell, Kyrie Irving, you know, Chris Paul. I even wanted to get Russell Westbrook on this list, um, Devin Booker. Like, there's – the guards were deep for this third team. I just felt in the situation that he was put in with, um, he had help, he had decent shooters, but he had to be the offensive engine creating the shots for everybody and going out there and getting his every night to put the Hawks in contention. And they are a top four team out East as it stands right now. I think it needs to be rewarded. That's interesting. And uh, it's not ludicrous. I mean, honestly, Trey was not one of my first guys off. I think that... He's obviously a phenomenal offensive player, a great offensive engine. It was interesting to me how, able, how well they were able to play without him and how good they were in the stretch where it was Bogey running the show. But I just think Kyrie's been better on the year. I think Kyrie's having one of the greatest scoring seasons ever, putting up 27, 5, and 6 on 50, 40, 92 splits, 91st percentile in isolation, 85th percentile out of the pick and roll, having an all-time scoring season for an all-time offense. I just can't deny that. I think at the eye test, he just remains so jaw-dropping. And yeah, it could sometimes make the game a little easier on himself. He could go more with the Trey threes and free throws approach, but he's so damn good in the mid-range now that he doesn't have to. He's still one of the most efficient scores in basketball on crazy volume. And I'm going to lean with that guy. But the Trey case is interesting. I didn't really think about it all that much. Yeah, I don't know. For My barometer for some of these was, and I guess this kind of goes against the uh, Paul George thing, but my barometer for the third team was, Without them, what are they? And I don't think the Hawks are even close to being a top four team out east if Trey Young isn't healthy all season long. When Very with a guy like Kyrie, I just thought immediate contradiction yeah. of what we were just talking about. That's what that's what I do. That's what I do here on Nerd Sesh. <laughs> okay. So your other backcourt spot was Harden. Anything else you want to say about him? I think we've touched on Harden enough. Okay. So I'll talk about Beal then here because you had him second team. It was honestly very close for me having him on because I think we need to acknowledge the Suns guards here who, for me, were the two toughest cuts. And Book was a tougher cut than CP. I'll get into why. But this was so close for me between Beal and Booker because they do such similar things. I just think Beal did them slightly better this year. He scores at really a significantly higher volume, play makes a little bit more on slightly better efficiency. I mean, the guy's having an amazing season 31.4 points per game on 49 35 89 splits and has just been everything for this wizards team they're 31 and 28 when he plays they're one in 10 when he doesn't contrast that to games without russ when they do have beal they're four and three their offense is 11 points per 100 better with him it's like going from the worst offense in the league to a top 10 unit and i just think he has proven these last two years that he can take any group and i mean any group because there is still not significant offensive talent on this Wizards team and make them a really good offense because of his versatility. He's a great cutter. He's great out of the pick and roll. Isolation, he's dominant. He shoots 40% off the catch from deep. He is just one of the most special scorers of the basketball we've seen in a while, who I think in a different situation will get more credit as he deserves. But it was close between him and Book because it's weird not having a representative from the second best team in basketball by record when their strength is so driven by the backcourt that is the best in basketball. And it was tough for me choosing between 
Beal and Book, as I said, but it wasn't all that tough between Book and CP. And I guess here is where I'll do my little CP spiel because the Suns offense is nine points per 100 better with Book on the floor than off it. A massive, massive gap. It's 0.7 points better with CP on it than off it. Basically insignificant. They play as well offensively with him out there or without him. And then you look and say, so his impact is defensive and People can talk about his leadership there. I don't think he's a bad defender, but out of all 302 players to defend five shots a game and play at least 35 games, that same bar that I said earlier, CP has the second worst field goal differential. People shoot 52% when he's their primary defender at the guard spot. So if you're going to say that's the difference maker, I'm going to disagree. And Book has really competed on the year. And I just think he has the luxury of... uh, sometimes not having to really produce as that scoring force. He has 11 games with less than 10 points this year. And the Suns are eight and three in those games. They still win. And what's crazy is, Logan, in those 11 games, Book has only averaged 20 and a half points per game, well below his average. And they still win because they are the ultimate team with one of the best cast of role players, a phenomenal team defense, a great coach, all these things that make them what they are. Yes, CP's command of the game is special. Yes, he's one of the most terrifying late game shot makers in basketball because of what he can do out of the mid-range. But I just think what a guy like Beal has done this year, carrying a team to be legitimately above average when he's on the floor compared to what they've been without him. Again, one in 10, while you're scoring at all-time volume, more efficiently, I just got to reward that. Cut. Beautiful take, Carson. Well said. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask then, we know you don't want him. You don't think you should be on there. I don't think you should. Will the media cave and give Chris Paul an all NBA nod? 100%. And I wouldn't say that it's caving because I think that it kind of depends on what you value, I guess. Like CP's command of the game is special. No question about that. And he does what he does really well. I just think he gets too much credit. I think that people ignore how much everybody around him has gotten better, how much he's able to just fade sometimes, whereas Book doesn't fade. I mean, Book has to be there always as that scoring presence. Teams key in on stopping Devin Booker. They don't key in on stopping Chris Paul. I think that's kind of plain to see when you watch. Who gets doubled at the elbow? Who gets doubled sometimes when he's just sizing a guy up? It's not Chris Paul. It's Devin Booker. And uh, that's the gravity. That's the offensive value that I don't think he gets enough credit for and that I think CP gets too much credit for. But at the end of the day, I don't have either of them here. So kind of beating a dead horse there. Let's move to the front court. So our difference here was you had PG second team. I have him third team. I don't think I need to say all that much. He's been a great player on a great team. A just phenomenal all-around offense. He's a lead off the catch, having a great shooting season. 77th percentile out of the pick and roll. Impactful defender still. He has to be here. And then you had Tatum, you had Jimmy, I had Zion. And Zion Tatum was my toughest decision out of all of these. I really think it was the toughest one alongside Beal and Book. Why did you go Tatum? And then I'll say why I went Zion. Um, I went with Jason because uh, he's been the sole constant on a wildly inconsistent, underperforming, injured Boston Celtics squad that, you know, I think without him, Carson completely whiffs on this playoff uh, altogether, you know, and mm-hmm. – uh, if you have not watched Jason Tatum, uh, the Jason Tatum video, another excellent Carson Brebber production, you know, he makes these, these head scratching decisions. Sometimes he makes life difficult for himself a lot, but it doesn't change the fact that this kid is an all time special scoring talent. And I think that was the, the big difference for me, Carson. Um, I want, I went with the guy whose skill set I like a little more and I like Tatum's a little more. He can get his buckets in more difficult situations. than I think Zion can, he may be better on the interior Tatum gets buckets anywhere and can create for himself like no other. Yeah, uh, this was crazy close because 
Their raw offensive output is basically the same. Zion scores a little bit more. Tatum play makes a little bit more. Their teams have both outscored opponents by about two points per 100 when they're on the floor and been about five points per 100 better with their guy on the floor than off it. And it's tough, man. It's really, really tough because I do prefer Tatum's skill set aesthetically. But right now, I don't think I can say I prefer it as far as effectiveness because the Zion we have seen post-All-Star game is a different monster. This is an insane basketball player. 29-7-4 on 65% true shooting. And I still wish the defense would improve. I still wish his awareness and effort consistently would improve there. His lateral mobility. But since All-Star... He's holding people 5% below their normal field goal percentage when he's the primary defender. Now, keep in mind, there's so much more to defense than just one-on-one performance. And even within this stat, sometimes it's just about how people shoot when you're the primary defender. Like, there's a bunch of variables. This is why you don't judge defense off of any one number. But that's improvement, man. That's big improvement. That's stuff that we didn't see previously. And the two-way impact still does go Tatum's way. The playmaking is still more impressive from Tatum. Like, I think that he runs pick and roll at a higher level as far as the reads that he's capable of making. But that's the thing. Tatum has to do more, right? The game is harder for him. The game is not hard for Zion. And I think when you can be 80th percentile as a cutter and a pick and roll ball handler like him, when you can be one of the most explosive off ball threats because of that lob catching ability and then unstoppable with the ball in your hands, facilitating out of the pick and roll, when you can swallow up your own misses, I just don't know how to turn that down at this point. I think that It's one of the most efficient volume scoring seasons we've ever seen. Again, 29 points per game post-All-Star on 65% true shooting, 27 a game on 65% true shooting on the year as a whole. It's very, very close. Very close indeed. But when their impact on winning has basically been the same, statistically, I'm going to go with the guy who I just think is more unstoppable, and that's Zion Williamson right now. Yeah, uh, Zion was the first forward off for me. It was it was brutal. It was crippling. Um, but let me ask you this then. So did the team success factor into it at all for you? Well, as I said, when they've been on the floor, they've had very similar differentials. And the gap between when they're on versus off the floor has been very similar. So I don't think there's a significant advantage there just because, I mean, the Celtics are so clearly so much better. Like they should be. Their roster is so much better. And then so in that, did you consider KD or a guy like Julius Randle at all? I very much consider Julius Randle, and I do want to acknowledge him, but there were just a couple things for me. First off, it's kind of just like I said earlier, the tiebreaker of who do I think is the better player. I think a lot of it with Randle is situational as far as the credit that he gets. And yeah, he's done a phenomenal job. I don't want to take that away, but the Knicks offense statistically has been identically efficient with or without him this year. And that's the number 23 offense in basketball. It's not a good team offense. And you can't pin that on him because he doesn't have good offensive players around him, but he's been basically average efficiency as a scorer. And uh, you can argue the two-way impact is there because he does play hard on defense as well. But I think PG and Tatum have that too. So I'm just going to lean with the guys who I think are better. And I think if we saw a number of these guys in Randall's situation, they could have more impressive output. It's, you know, it's always a give and take with these guys. Cause like Randall's ability to collapse defenses, I think is more significant than certainly what a Jason Tatum can do. But I also think Tatum's high end scoring skill is certainly more valuable than what Randall has. So it's tough. I think Randall's a sturdy, honorable mention, but He's my second guy off after Tatum. KD would have been here, but it's not enough games played. To me, when you're under half, again, it's another arbitrary line in the sand. It's weird, but that's where I had to draw it. I thought about having him, 
though, but I decided it's just not enough games. Okay. So at the center spot, I had Gobert. Remind me, who do you have there? I have Gobert as well. Okay. I know you love Bam so much. Any consideration of Bam here? Yeah, I mean, I thought about it, um, especially with his improvement this season, uh, just pure jump shooting. Bam's a genuine face-up threat when he gets the rock. Um, mm-hmm. And he's improved on that in, in general. But honestly, man, I still might – I mean this honestly. I still might take Rudy Gobert on the offensive end comparatively to Bam. Um, and I don't mean as a – I mean just as an interior force, man. Gobert, mm-hmm. like, people crap on him like he is an Andre Drummond type in the paint. Dude, Gobert's mm-hmm. got, like, decently developed post moves. He can roll off of guys. He's strong. He's a really good screener. I, and he's a decent – he's a decent lob threat. Like, I feel like people – he's not a great offensive player. The reason he is here is because he's the best defensive player on the planet. But uh, I think people underrate Rudy Gobert's offensive impact sometime. But – the gap for me uh, between what they bring to a team defense is a little too uh, a little too much. You know, Gobert's got longer arms, and he is more of a just imposing rim protector comparatively to Bam. Yeah, it's about the defensive end. I think that the gap is really large, even between him and Bam, as far as regular season dominance. And you see that in Gobert's team impact. They're 17.5 points per 100 better with him out there. That's insane. And offensively, his role is really simple, but he does it really well. He's 84th percentile as a role man. He's the most efficient volume scorer in basketball. And he makes your team an elite defense. That's crazy. That's undeniable impact. I wanted to try to talk myself into Bam because I think he's I think he's a decent amount better offensively. I just think as great as Bam is defensively, Gobert is still better on that end by an even wider margin. Like he's just that all-time special there. Which leads us into all defense, but first I'll give you a chance to shout out any other guys you considered for all NBA. Are there any other honorable mentions who are going to keep you up at night that you didn't give them the nod? Yeah, so I want to ask you too, uh, who like your first few guys off were. My definitively first guy off was Donovan Mitchell. I just thought one seed in the wow. West, um, Gobert gets his on the defensive end, but Mitchell has been obviously just as imperative offensively. He was my toughest cut, followed by uh, Kyrie and then D Book. Interesting. So you would take Donovan Mitchell over book. Yeah, I would. And uh, these are the questions that we have to answer on nerd sesh. That's a, that's a, okay. We didn't actually Um, because the seating. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm trying to dance around it. Yeah, man, that's tough. Um, But yeah, I think I, I think I'm still going Donovan just because of the one seed factor. Interesting. I just prefer book. I think that he's more malleable. I think that his off-ball value is crazy, not just the pure shooting, because I think that that leans Mitchell as far as beyond the arc. But again, curling off screens in the mid-range as a cutter, I just think he's so good at that stuff. He's a little more efficient. Playmaking, pretty much a wash. Defense, I slightly lean Booker, actually. I think that he's really competitive there at this point. It's close, but I think that he just is a little more essential to his team, and I think that that's partly reflected by how good the Jazz have been without Mitchell on the year. I mean, they're better with him off the floor than on it. They're just that great of an all-around team. And when the Suns don't have books scoring at a high volume, sometimes they struggle. Sometimes they can compensate, as I touched on earlier, because they're that good of a team. But I think they need him more. My first guys off were easily Book and then CP at the guard spot, Tatum and then Randall in the front court, and then Bam at the center spot. Let's get into all defense now because we're going to have some overlap from some of the guys we were just talking about. I'll go my first team first. I have Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Draymond Green, Bam Adebayo, and Rudy Gobert. Who do you have? 
Yeah, see, dude, I did not know what to do with these uh, weird positioning rules. So yeah. I've got Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Giannis, Draymond, and then Rudy Gobert. Yeah, so that's the thing, right? Bam isn't a center. Bam is not a forward. Bam is a center, but he's eligible at forward. And for me, I was able to say, okay, he's close enough. I don't know. Like, I can't say Joel Embiid is a forward in any sense. Can I say Bam is? Not really, but he's close enough. Well, you know what? And I say that, no, I put Bam as a forward on my second team because I oh. ended up also putting Clint Capella on there because I was like, oh, Capella's not a natural four. Neither is Bam. I don't, I don't get it. But I also think maybe I, you know what? Screw it. I am going to, if I'm choosing Bam or Giannis and I'm going to put him in a forward ultimately, I'll go Bam on yeah. the first team, bro, because I genuinely believe he's, I hate these rules. I don't get them. Yeah. They're so stupid, dude. So stupid. Like when you're talking about defense, Rim protection is so much more valuable. You should be able to have five centers here if you want to. You should be able to have 10 centers if you want to. I wouldn't recommend it, but you should be able to. So, okay. Does that mean that we end up having the same team? Yeah. We do indeed. Okay. So, I guess let's talk about the Heat guys because we already talked about Simmons, Draymond, and Gobert for the depoy conversation. For Jimmy, it's just what I said earlier. The Heat's defense goes from bottom five without him to top three with him. He holds people 2.5% below their average field goal percentage when he's the primary defender. League-leading 2.1 steals per game. And he's just been on a mission. He's long, he's versatile, he's crazy competitive, he's crazy tough, got great hands. Everything you would want in a perimeter defender when he's locked in, and he's been locked in for this entire year. Yeah, and they've needed it. Um I, as for Bam, uh, we touched on it earlier, and he's a 93rd percentile of defensive uh, uh, against pick-and-roll ball handlers. They shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you touched on, he's not a elite rim protector when it comes to straight up like a Gobert, like a Miles Turner. Uh, guys only shoot nearly 5% uh, worse than their average inside six feet on Bam, but they also shoot 3.2% worse on three-pointers when they're guarded by Bam as well because of that, that malleability on defense, that switch ability. He is just so versatile, and that's why, uh, that's why he's got to be here. You said it perfectly. He holds people only 4.5% below their average at the rim. That's a good mark, but it's not going to compare to most all-defense big men. But he holds them 4% below their average across the board. And you mentioned 93rd percentile guarding pick-and-roll ball handlers, 84th percentile guarding roll men. Like, it just, it's an insane amount of flexibility to where you cannot exploit a single weakness with him, moves his feet better on the perimeter than any big man I've ever seen. And that's crazy special. So I think he has to be there as a first-team guy if you are able to acknowledge the fact that You know, he's not really a forward, but you can put him at forward just because these rules suck. Second team, this was tough, Logan. There's one spot here that I don't feel as great about, and I had to do some more position manipulation here. Nothing crazy, just a little bit of manipulation. But I have Drew Holiday, Lou Dort, Matisse Theibel, Giannis, and Clint Capella here. Who do you have? Yeah, it was it was hard with these position rules. I went Lou Dort, uh, Kawhi, Matisse Theibel, Giannis, and then Clint Capella. Okay, so Kawhi's eligible at guard as well, I take it? that Yeah, that's what I did. Okay, so I guess let's just go down the list here because we haven't really talked about any of these guys defensively all that much. So I'll start with Holiday because I think that a lot of the times when you ask NBA players around the league who's the best perimeter defender or who's the best defensive guard in basketball, they'll say Drew Holiday. I think that there's a lot of good reasons for that. But I also think that this is one of the weaker defensive seasons he's had. Like, he's still second-team all-defense. He's still great there. But if you compare it to his last four years, his team's defense each of those years was at least 4.3 points per 100 or better with him out there every year. 
that's the margin between him on versus off the floor significant. This year, it's less than two points per 100. You cut that by half and a little bit more. And it's also by far the highest field goal percentage he's allowed as a primary defender in that five-year span. And he still drew Holiday, unbelievable defender, 6'7 wingspan, great hands, high IQ, unbelievable job of consistently getting and staying in position. He's tough. He's smart. He's just a prototypical great defensive guard. Doesn't have the versatility, I will say, of a Jimmy or a Simmons. And I think that that matters. And I think that that's also part of the reason why I went with those guys as first team. But pound for pound, man, is just a dog and a great defender. Let's talk about Lou Dort because he was the guy I probably felt most sketchy about, but you have him here. Why don't you make the case for Lou? Well, I want to touch on uh, Drew for a second. I mean, did any yeah. of the advanced numbers, did any of them uh, turn you off to putting Drew on this team? Not completely, because I just think there comes a point where with the eye test with Drew, he's so impressive. And like, again, it's a down season for him. I think a down season for him is still all defense. I just think it's second team, not first team. So that's kind of where I came down on it. Got you. It was close. I ended up going with Giannis um, from the Bucks just because I do feel like a consistent, uh, you have a defensive rating that high for a team. Somebody needs to be rewarded. Uh, I mm-hmm. did go with Lou Dort as well, though. Um, we all know the intense effort uh, that Lou gives. He's uh He's a dog, man. He works. He's uh, every possession. But the big thing for me uh, in Oklahoma City was, you know, obviously didn't translate to winning, but when he was on the floor, it was a league average defense. Without Lou Dort on the floor this season, the Thunder had a defensive rating of nearly 123. With him on the floor, they had a defensive rating of 113.6. I mean, that's game-changing impact. And, I mean, they were 23rd defensive rating. The 123 mark is absolutely atrocious. A guy shoot nearly 3% worse on three-point attempts when guarded by Lou, and they shoot 3% overall from the field. Um, he's a dog. He works. And um, I don't know, man, the way he – just smart, too. Forces guys to sidelines, knows how to yeah. position himself. And he's a – I mean, he's like a meatball. That dude's just thick. He's mm-hmm. – <laughs> Lou's uh, versatile, and he's uh, he's strong, man. It's – He's just a different type of guard, man. You don't see guys that stocky, but he's, uh, he's a worker. And I think despite maybe it not translating to team success on the entire level, he deserves to be rewarded. Yeah. I'd like to have maybe an Embiid or a Pirtle here, but I can't really do that. I wish I could maybe have AD in the front court, but he hasn't played enough. So I'll give it to Dort because we're talking about insane effort. As you mentioned, six, nine wingspan, strong, crazy active feet and hands. And it's just incredible how much he can care in a situation where most guys wouldn't care and really give that game-changing effort as you talked about. That dude, when he's in a winning situation again, is going to have an impact in some big spots as we saw last year. He's smart and he's got all the tools and he's going to play insanely hard and that makes for a great defender. So maybe he's not one of the 10 best defenders in basketball in my opinion, but he's certainly good enough to where I can, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over having Lou Dort here because obviously I chose to. Let's talk now about Thibel, who I have in my front court. It's a little bit of flexing. I mean, really, he's a two for the most part, but you know what? I'm a bad boy. I don't play by the rules. You have him as well. Why don't you make the case for Matisse? I think, uh, I think Matisse has been the uh, most underrepresented player when uh, you know people are discussing the 76ers defense. I said that last week. He's... Uh, people know he's a good defender, but he just doesn't give enough credit, man. He's great at getting mm-hmm. into passing lanes, great, uh, picking guys' attempts up. But 
it's the it's the advanced numbers that really sell you on them, man. They shoot nearly 8% worse on field goal attempts when guarded by Matisse. That is the best in the NBA on decent volume. Players shoot 6.1% worse on three-point attempts when guarded by Matisse. That's the 11th best mark in the NBA. And uh, it just – I you could notice it, man. He made – Matisse has got highlights on highlights uh, on defense and – uh, they had a 108 um, defensive rating when he was on the floor, maybe suggesting that uh, he didn't have an impact on team defense. I don't care, man. Individually, uh, you could notice it each time out, uh, especially with the – it's going to be – we're going to beat a dead horse with this phrase. Tease also is one of those high-energy, high-effort guys. You see it every night. Yeah, I don't think you can say that he didn't have an impact on team defense. It's just the Sixers have such great defensive personnel that – I mean, you're talking about a rotation that is going to involve two out of three – of Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Matisse Thibel, basically at all times, those are three all-defense caliber guys. I mean, you touched on all the numbers. I think that minute per minute, he is a first-team all-defense guy. We're talking about insane length, 6'11 wingspan, quick hands, great shot-blocking instincts. KOC tweeted today about how many more jump shots Thibel has blocked than anybody else. I think he's at 56 and second. Is it 37 or something? He just closes in on you so quickly, and those arms are freaky. The playmaking is there. Over one block a game, 1.6 steals per game in 20 minutes. And he's just a clamper, dude. An absolute clamper. And when he can hit 37% of his threes, man, he's going to be a great, great player in this league. And I really hope that that day does come. But, yeah, he is phenomenal and definitely closer to being on my first team than being off of my team entirely. So now we both have Giannis and Capella here if I'm not mistaken. I'll talk about Giannis briefly. Holds opposing players 5% below their average field goal percentage. Not nearly as good as last year, but still really good. He's an elite help side rim protector. Holds people 12% below their average field goal percentage around the rim. And he's an elite defensive playmaker overall. 1.2 steals per game, 1.2 blocks per game. Can be killer in that rover role, jumping passing lanes or coming over to block shots. And then also can clamp guys just guarding one-on-one traditionally. He's a valuable defensive weapon who maybe hasn't been as good as he was there last year, but still has some of the most special traits in the league to play defense and is really, really good at it. And then Capella, I already touched on with just his immense impact on this team and how good he's been protecting the rim. Anything you want to add about either of those guys? Um, I think you summed up Giannis pretty perfectly. I think the big sell is the help side rim protection. He's elite in that role. Also, um, chasing guys down. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, in that free safety on fast breaks, when he is that guy back, uh, he's scary to deal with. And yeah, as for Capella, as you already touched on, the Hawks are an elite team defense when Capella's on the floor. And uh, I don't know, you can't say that about a lot of other guys. I want to ask you this. Was it close at all um, with a guy like Miles Turner? Like, did you consider putting him over a guy like Capella or just <laughs> saying screw the positions? Well, I wish that I could have because then I would have had Turner on and I would have booted Lou Dort. And same as I said with Pirtle. I mean, I think that there's so many great defensive centers in basketball right now. When it comes down to Turner, I just think his impact on all-around team defense isn't quite the same as Capella's. I mean, it's close. He is a phenomenal deterrent around the rim as well. And I also think that Sometimes the games played can be a tiebreaker and Turner's been out a decent amount this year. He's going to end up missing like a third of their games and Capella has been so reliable and so important that I did want to reward that here. 
So then I had a few other guys that I left off. I want to ask your opinion. Uh, I know you God. mentioned uh, your big Faku guy. Did you consider him or Fred Van Vliet at all for either of these teams? You know, I really wanted to put Faku on there, but I decided that if you're going to put a guy who's played like 20 minutes a game, it has to be a Thibel kind of just absolute freak. You know, if he was playing starter minutes, you could argue he's the best perimeter defender in basketball. And I don't think that Faku's at that level, but yes, that man is great. And let's just say we'll be talking about him in a second. Fred Van Vliet, yeah, I think that he's always kind of an honorable mention here. I just don't think he has the tools that Lou does physically. I don't think he gives the effort play to play. And so I would say I was closer to putting Faku on, but I don't think I would have felt very good about putting Faku on. He's an honorable mention though, no doubt. Um, did you consider AD or LeBron at all? AD, if he had been healthy more, would have been on my list. No doubt about that. I think when he's healthy, he's just pencil him in immediately for all defense. And LeBron, no. I mean, a great defensive season for him, but there's too many good defensive guys in the front court. And I just don't think I could have rewarded him over a guy like AD if he was healthy or, you know, over a guy like... Giannis or Thibel or any of the centers I wish I could pretend were forwards or, you know, an Embiid who's eligible there, but I just can't do it because I'd feel like a clown putting him at forward. So LeBron, really good defensive season, not good enough to be all defense in my opinion. Anyone else you want to shout out there before we move on to our all rookie teams? No, I'm, uh, let's roll. Okay. So I'll read out my first team. I think there's three guys we want to have to discuss at all. I have Ant, LaMelo, and Halliburton, top three rookie of the year, guys. And then I have two non-traditional rookies. I have 25-year-old Jay Sean Tate, and I have 30-year-old Facundo Campazzo. Who do you have? Faku counts as a rookie? Yeah, he does. <laughs> well, I might, have to, I might have to make a last-second audible here. Um <laughs> I've got uh, I've got Lamelo and Halliburton and Jay Sean Tate as well. Um, I didn't even realize that. What are what are Faku's numbers? All right, so I'll give you the Faku pitch because let's be honest, it doesn't lie with the numbers. I don't think that that encapsulates how good he really is because putting up six points per game, three and a half assists per game on thirty six percent from three, but he's just meaningfully contributed and at times been the third or fourth best healthy guy for a team that remains elite. And none of the guys on my second team could do that right now. He's just better. I think than guys like Sadiq Bay, Emmanuel quickly, who I considered who have more tantalizing skill sets long-term, no question. And if they're not better than Faku, I would be disappointed for them because Faku's 30. He's a finished product. He's not getting better from here. And I think that shows in how he plays. He just is a vet and the 30, 8% I think he shoots from the field is not really reflective of his offensive efficiency. He's basically average efficiency because all of his shots are three threes, but then his value offensively is the playmaking, the secondary playmaking, the smart passes in transition, the movement off ball is good with him as well. And then defensively, he is a hound, holds people to 43% shooting when he's a primary defender, averages 1.2 steals per game and just doesn't stop working. So I don't think it lies with the numbers. He just does a bunch of little stuff, makes good decisions as a passer, knocks down his open shots, and is just a good basketball player on a team that really needs him to help win games. And he was able to step up and do that. And I don't think other guys could have in the same way because they're, you know, a decade younger. And that's unfair to expect that of them. But when Faku counts as a rookie, I think he's born one of the five best in basketball this year. You know what? 
Did I persuade you? Let's do it. I mean, originally I kind of went, I went positionally. So I ended up uh, having a five on here, but Mm. uh, if the choices between James Wiseman and Faku, like that's, that's not close on winning. Also, I mean, Wiseman playing 39 games this season head to head, like that matters. Yeah. I should have explained also to our listeners that there are no position rules with all rookies. So we are finally liberated. We could just pick the guys who we think are most deserving, which is very nice. So you got Faku flexed in there now. Let's talk about Jay Sean, Nerd Sesh favorite. We've talked about him more than I'm sure anybody else in the country, but let's give a brief rundown, Logan, if you want to take it first. I mean, he's one of many guys who were a part of their G League system that have really shined this season. I'm so glad that he's, he, he's had a volume of opportunity on this bad team to stand out. He is a deadly uh, – he's a – I won't say deadly. He's a good three-point shooter from time to time and catch and shoots, but he's better in the lane. He's a really hard, gritty defender. He works. Um, And then offensively, I mean, he's got decent tools, playmaking. He's athletic, uh, but I really like him as a defensive prospect more than anything else. And if he is consistently knocking his shots down in years to come, he is just a valuable asset to have off the bench. Yeah, one of my favorite players, just a guy who does it all. Puts up 11, five and a half, and two and a half this year on 50% shooting can handle out of the pick and roll, make good decisions there. We've seen Point J. Sean, really good cutter, 80th percentile there, and he thrives in that role, can occasionally knock down a shot. The three-point shot isn't where you'd want it to be, but it's fine. It's competent. He can fight on the glass, averages two offensive boards a game. You mentioned the defense is really high level, just a really good all-around basketball player, and the Rockets are nine points per 100 better with him out there because of it. He just impacts winning in all of its phases, and yeah, him and Faku are basically taking PEDs when it comes to the all-rookie teams, all right? Because they're 25 and 30. These are full-grown men who are fully developed for the most part. Jayshon might still have a little bit to go. Faku doesn't, but that doesn't mean that they haven't been two of the five best rookies this year because I think that they have. And it's weird, but I think it's true. Let's move on to second team now. So I have Sadiq Bey, Emmanuel Quickly, Isaiah Stewart, Desmond Bain, and Patrick Williams. Who do you have? Okay, we differ on one. I have Emmanuel Quickly, Desmond Bain, Patrick Williams, Sadiq Bay, and Kenyon Martin Jr. Okay, interesting. I should have known that you would get KJ Martin in there. All right, let's start from the top of the names I have in front of me here. Sadiq Bay. I think it's a very simple case. 12 points per game on 39% shooting from three. It's the greatest volume three-point shooting season of any rookie ever. He's also very competent on the defensive end. Doesn't have all that much wiggle in his game creation for himself, crazy playmaking, anything like that, but definitely a diamond in the rough in this draft and a guy who excels at what he does well and certainly an all-rookie caliber player. I think he'll probably be first team because I don't think other people are going to have Faku first team, but he's a really, really good rookie. I mean, he's a he's a knockdown shooter, and that's about all you can ask for. Um, yeah, If a rookie's hitting his threes, give him some minutes, and like you said, it is the best that we've ever seen from a guy. Like, And there's not – there's not a whole lot else to like about his game. He doesn't do anything else, but if you're hitting your catch and shoot attempts at near 40% clip over uh, 38% on the year. Yeah. He's uh, I think it's a no brainer if a rookie shooting this well, real prototypical three and D that's going to be his role and something every team needs. All right. I'll let you give the quick pitch on quickly because obviously he's your guy. Go check out Logan's video on IQ. If you're Jonesing for some of that, but why does quickly have to be here? Um, I mean, slightly inefficient, but that's just kind of how it's going to go when you're a guy that you can't get to the rack for the efficiency that he has put up. It's impressive because he puts up a lot of threes, catch and shoot attempts, or created by himself off of the pick and roll. Um, 
but he does have a reliable shot. That floater is absolutely filthy. He gets it up at any moment, um, putting up nearly 12 points per game, two boards, two assists. Outside of what he does, uh, which is reliable catch and shooting, um, a little bit of stuff off the dribble and that floater, he doesn't really bring a whole lot to a team. He's decent on effort on defense, but it's he's a guy who can fill it up quickly off the bench. And uh, nice. there weren't a whole lot of guys who could – yeah, there weren't a whole lot of guys who could uh, just take the ball by themselves in their hands off of a screen and score like he can out of the pick and roll. Yep, no doubt. And when he figures out how to get all the way downhill, if he does, where he doesn't have to rely on that floater as much, uh, he's going to be a great offensive player, but he's still able to score an average efficiency because he's 40% from deep. Knicks have been way better with him out there on the year. Just clearly a talented kid, has good feel for the game, has got really nice touch, can shoot the hell out of the ball. And yeah, a really good player right out of the gate. I'll touch on – okay, so Isaiah Stewart is our one difference, so we'll touch on that last. Desmond Bain, I think very straightforward case. Just an incredible shooter of the basketball, smart, all-around good basketball player, got some secondary playmaking. He's going to give you effort defensively, but 44% from deep, nine a game, kind of guy that you can immediately plug and play and can be good on a good team, and I think that that kind of guy just has to be here. Patrick Williams is the last guy we agree on. He was actually – my last guy on here. I wanted to have another friend of mine who unfortunately I had to cut, but why don't you make the case for Patrick? Cause I know you were talking about him in that rookie of the year debate earlier as well. Yeah. I mean, Williams was head scratching uh, as a decision draft day, but I've been proven wrong. And I think the big appeal mm-hmm. of a guy like him over uh, quickly or Bain, uh, I Williams is a much better and uh, already a pretty proficient creator uh, of his own yeah. shot off the dribble. Um, it's these guys don't have it. Williams does, man. He's, he's really good in the mid range. He's got a decently developed post game already. He's a good catch and shooter and three point shooter in general. Um, he just, he's got a really solid offensive game right now where I didn't think he was far along and he is the tools and the size, the athleticism to become a really, uh, a beast on the defensive end. He's a decent, uh, defender right now, but, um, with how far along and polished his offensive game was, I thought he was pretty raw to the draft. Um, He's got one of the more polished offensive games uh, as a rookie this season. Yeah. And that's really the reason that I had him over Jaden McDaniels, who was the guy I really wanted to get on my team because I think he's going to be a monster. Defensively, McDaniels is so far along. As a help side rim protector, averages a block a game. So long, fluid, mobile, offensively. Has some moments where the handle and the shot creation come together and you just think that kid is really good. But it's not consistently enough and – Patrick Williams has started every game when he's been healthy, which has been basically the entire year for a team that is really trying to win now. And that matters. I got to reward that. And you mentioned it. His ability to get that mid-range shot is something Jaden doesn't have, something Desmond Bain doesn't have, something Sadiq Bey doesn't have. Like, it's really distinctive. He gets to his spots, and you put up nine a game on 48% from the field, 38.5% from three. You compete hard. And again, you're actually important to a team that's trying to win now. I think you deserve to be rewarded for that. We differ... In our last spot, I have Isaiah Stewart. You have Kenny Martin Jr. I'll go first on Isaiah because I don't feel as strongly about him as you do about KJ, who was one of my honorable mentions as well. But Stewart has been really good this year. We've talked about him before, so I'll go quickly. But eight and seven on 55% for the field, 33% from three. Has always been that really imposing interior force, gobbling up boards as that roll man can throw it down in there. But he's starting to space the floor. He's showing his touch, stretching it out to the three-point line a little bit more, putting the ball on the floor a little bit more the touch, the strength, it's all there. It's all coming together. And I just think he's a really good basketball player. Why do you have KJ Martin here? 
maybe it's a little recency bias um, because, I mean, on the season, his numbers are okay, nine points, five boards, one assist on 53-40-72 shooting splits. Uh, KMJ just in these last 10 games has been amazing. Uh, nearly 18 points per game on 56-49, uh, 64 shooting splits with seven boards a night. Um, this kid, he is going to be a really dominant uh, just lob threat for whatever team he's with because of his bounce. He's a really good help side rim protector. Like, even though he's undersized, it doesn't really concern me about this kid now because I think he's going to – that bounce just equalizes anything. You know, he's uh, he's undersized mm-hmm. for the four spot with, with his athletic ability. Um, I don't really think it matters. And then, I don't know, man, recently, dude, just with the ball in his hands, he's really good at getting downhill. And I think if if he continues to progress, obviously this doesn't affect this year. If he continues to progress, this kid can be a – a really good second option on a either on a bench or on a on a unit. He's going to be a good second option on offense. Um, he's got the tools to it, and if he's hitting his three pointer at a decent clip, he's a valuable asset to have out there. Um, over Isaiah, I mean, I think both have had uh, comparable um, mm-hmm. <laughs> impact on winning thus far. Uh, not much, but yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. KMJ's just been. I like KMJ's skill and deeper yeah. bag more. Isaiah is kind of a more trench uh, working uh, guy than him but uh it, it, it was really close between these two guys I just like KMJ's kind of more skilled game than uh, Isaiah's very fair very fair and maybe I should have gone with KMJ because he pops right now man and when you watch the Rockets play he is the standout guy no question super impressive athletically defensively he's gonna have an impact you already see the shot blocking but when he really starts raining down threes, that's going to be a great NBA player. And so no hard feelings on that one. Some honorable mentions for me. I mean, it's really interesting how much this draft is about depth because I had three top 10 picks in my all-rookie spots. And, you know, you don't necessarily expect that. I do have Killian Hayes as an honorable mention. Hasn't played nearly enough. Hasn't scored the ball nearly well enough. But I love the kid's passing. I'll throw Teo Maladon in there just because he was forced to step into a big role immediately. And I thought he fared well enough. You saw the playmaking and some of the shooting from him. I think that Peyton Pritchard guy who again was put into a spot where he had to play big minutes and did well enough. Xavier Tillman. God, I love that floater, but Cole Anthony was probably the second toughest guy off after KMJ for me, just because, you know, he's had to put up some legitimate numbers. He's had to play in some big moments and we've seen, the expectation of him to both score and play make just hasn't been efficient enough. Hasn't been consistent enough for me, but definitely an honorable mention. Actually, Jaden McDaniels was my toughest guy off, but then Kenyon and then Cole Anthony, anybody else you want to shout out? Um, I did like Wiseman in the limited action that we did see him play in. Um, granted again, right now, not really a uh, winning formula, but uh, he, yeah. he showed flashes, not good enough to get on the team. Um, Isaac Okoro. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Okoro had his moments, obviously, uh, exploding for his big game. You touched on it a few weeks ago, how polarizing he is as a player. Uh, I think my toughest cut was Cole Anthony, though. I mean, 12 points Mm. per game and four assists, it may not seem overwhelmingly impressive, especially when he wasn't as efficient uh, as some of the other guys, uh, under 40%, under 33% from deep. But uh, to put up 12 points per game as a rookie when you were just told, go out there and Show me what you got. Uh, it was pretty impressive from Cole, and I think he has got big things uh, in his future. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about this class is so many of the guys here are just pro-ready. 
like a Sadiq Bay, a Desmond Bain, older guys who have that skill set to contribute immediately, or literally guys who are non-traditional rookies like a Jay Sean Tate or a Faku, doesn't mean that Okoro is not going to be better than these guys or whoever, but they just didn't have the better season because they weren't as pro-ready. Yeah, I mean, but there is a wealth of talent in this class. R.J. Hampton, Malachi Flynn, yeah. uh, they're Nico Mannion, maybe, if you're a guy, uh, wow, Tyrese Maxey. <laughs> Tyrese Maxey, for sure. A lot of guys came along as this season progressed. There's a lot of talent here, and it's going to be fun to watch it all develop. Well, that will do it for us here today. Two hours of award, all-NBA, all-defense, all-rookie talk, a marathon for us here at NerdSesh, but it was a lot of fun. We hope that you've enjoyed listening. If you have, the good news is we got plenty more content like it. We do a couple shows a week on the NBA, and of course, we are in the heat of the season right now. We're getting to the really good stuff, playing coming up in just a few days, so we'll do another couple pods previewing the, well, the wrapping up the end of the season, previewing the play-in, and then as we get into actual playoff stuff, and then throughout the playoffs, obviously, we'll be very active. If you're looking for our YouTube content, we do a bunch of video breakdowns there. I did one pretty recently on the four major challenges remaining for the Lakers that you can go ahead and check out. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh just to keep in, keep plugged into what we're doing there. We do a lot of video content, graphic content, all that good stuff. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.